Okay, so um, I think this is going to be cool. We're going to, Mr. Twite's going to tell us a little story. Right. So, so the, the, the context is, uh, like an hour ago, we're sitting in your office, Mark, and, and we're talking about photography because that's what we talk about. Yep. And, uh, I mean, when you have Ben Staley in the house, what else are you going to talk about? I mean, I don't For ride some... a bike, and I don't, I'm kind of weak, so I don't lift heavy shit, and like, <laughs> all I can talk about is cameras, so. You're going to be a runner soon, though, probably. I, yes, I am. <laughs> um, so, I don't even know how we got there, but you start, you were maybe 15 minutes into this magical story about going to Russia in the early 90s, and uh, I started for it. It was going in my head for like two minutes. I'm like, I got to stop him. I got to stop him. But I was like so into what you were saying. And I'm like, I got to stop him because like, you know, I guess for, for the listener, you know, a lot of people know what you've done and they've read your books and your magazine articles and they've they followed your climbing career because you had a pretty prolific career and you were, in, you were in the upper echelon of, you know, a pretty, pretty narrow group of men and women doing cool shit so people people are familiar with your big climbs and stuff um and they've read about that it's and i've had the opportunity a couple times to just hear you tell stories and it's a little different and it's fucking awesome man so so we're gonna start the story over okay we agreed to do that i'm gonna ask you a few more pointed questions okay and trevor's gonna chime in because we have trevor thompson in the house also a photographer um, has he, also, been, as as he noted, all three of us in this room have been to Russia. Yes, mm-hmm. sir. Yes, I've been to Siberia, been to Moscow, and then Siberia. Where have you been, Trevor? St. Petersburg. Perfect. Spent two and a half, three weeks there. Formerly known as Leningrad until precisely. he fell out of favor. Well, <laughs> originally something. known as St. Petersburg. Yeah. Well, now it's like Prince; it just keeps changing its name. <laughs> the, the, the city, province, formerly known as it's, whatever. As, <laughs> yeah, as not what it's known as now. So, am I right? You went twice, Mark, nineteen ninety ninety one. Yeah. So now, just maybe back up. I think what would be important is like, let's get some clarity on where you are in your climbing career. So you started kind of, kind of mid eighties, you started getting, kind of getting it on, getting it on pretty seriously. And so what, what have you done up to this point? So, but by that spring of 1990, when I was trying to, you know, figure something out to do, I had been, uh, I've been in the Himalayas a few times already. Um, I'd gone to done a new route on Kangtega, tried to climb a new route on Nipsey with Jeff Lowe. So that route on Kangtega with Allison Hargraves and she and I climbed Lobache Peak as well. I went, uh, after Jeff and I failed on the South Pillar of Nipsey, um, he and I went back the following winter to try again because if we couldn't do it in the spring, it certainly makes sense to go in the winter. Um, but he assured me there'd be like a big weather window and con- good conditions. And we, you know, by the time everything uh, went down, this is a story for the next episode maybe. Yes, sir. Um, uh, we'd been on we were on the route for 11 days and didn't get, you know, more than two pitches higher than we did in the springtime. 
so I'd been there. Then I'd gone to Nanga Parbat in Pakistan in, 90, in, in 1988. And then right after that, went to Everest the same year. Um, both of those trips with Barry Blanchard. And, uh, and then um, 89, I didn't do anything. I was but burned out as fuck. Because um, we did Nanga Parbat. I mean, the Nanga Parbat trip and the Everest trip were pretty much, you know, three months in Pakistan, back in the Alps for three weeks, and then two and a half months for Everest. And so it was much of the year of 88, and I was just burned out. So um, spring of 1990, I, I was looking for something to do, and I had, um, and I didn't really have, I didn't have any money to go back to the Himalayas at that point. And I remembered, so I'd received a telex no email? It, no, it was not an email at the, that point. And uh, um, an invitation to come climbing in the Soviet Union. And it, that that had come like six months before, and I hadn't answered. I just put it, filed it away and thought, okay, this might be worth looking into at some point. I don't know what's there. I didn't wasn't familiar with any mountains uh, in the former Soviet Union. So, um, Not made of dirt. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I knew there were, you know, 7,000-meter peaks. I think there's five peaks that, 7,000 meters high there, something like that. Um, anyway, I, and, and so I'm sitting in this basement apartment in Chamonix and I'm th- like kind of looking for purpose. I remember this telex, I pull it out and there's like a fax number on it. And so I type out something on my typewriter on a piece of paper. I go down to the post office where they have a fax machine and I fax a response saying, yes, I could be interested. And so then the fax <laughs> came back eventually. And the post office called me and like, hey, you have a fax here. That's how it worked. Um, oh, yeah. What a process. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I went, I got it and read the invitation. They said, okay, we can, you know, you just have to get here. And then we'll, you know, host you while you're here. You know, we will take you to a base camp and we'll go, we're going this summer to the area um, where peak communism, it has a different name now because communism is not cool. Um, And peak corrigent, and peak communism is like 7,500 meters summit elevation. And then, uh, well, that's serious. And there's one, yeah. (laughs) And then one right next to it is just seven, is 7,000, just over 7,000 Korzhenevska, I think is what it was called. Um, so I said, we're going to this camp and if you can get here on this day. And so I convinced Ace Cavalli to go with me. And, uh, we, you know, we went to Paris. We spent a couple days in Paris getting visas from the consulate because we had to have visas to get into the, get into Russia. And, And we were both Americans living in France at the time. And, and that, that, there ensued some interesting. You want to go where? <laughs> why are you? What? Why are you applying for you know visas here in France when you should be doing so <laughs> where you live? Um, well, because we're here, you know, <laughs> like because I've been here two years on a ninety-day tourist visa, and um, anyway. But so so just <laughs> to, to leave to look at it though. I mean, you you don't have a ton of money. Like yeah. MLA is really expensive it's basically like come over here and we'll just pay for everything. If you just get here and yeah. you can, you can climb your ass off and we're going to take care of the bill. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and you know, you're not going to live in style, you know, it's like you're dropping, you're parachuting into 
like a, a different era. Not climbing peak communism. N- no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's no Club Med. No, there was, the, it, it, and, and but it was really interesting. It was a, a, a time when this whole idea of the joint venture for um, businesses with, you know, non-capitalist or semi-capitalist businesses inside the Soviet Union partnering with companies in Western Europe to basically, and guiding companies and ski companies and stuff that would, that could bring clients to Russia and then the, and then the, 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 the Russian business would sort of host them. And I mean, that I'm really familiar with that just through the fishing industry in Alaska. They had the joint venture up there where okay. the, they, they banned foreign ships, basically Russian ships from fishing in Alaskan waters and in the area. So I hope I'm not fucking this up, but basically they could come over, they would send the Russian boats over and then the American Alaskan boats could catch the fish and then sell it to the Russians, like boat to boat transfer joint venture and that was like late 80s early 90s i think oh, so it was happening i think across different industries and as a way to get the countries to you know share economic growth or something of along those lines some capitalistic yeah. bullshit yeah exactly yeah <laughs> which and the, the guys that invited me um they were and i can't remember the name of their company at the time but it was brothers two brothers nikolai and alexei shustrov and then that company was the, the figurehead was this guy Vladimir Ballyberdin, and, and Ballyberdin was the first uh, Soviet guy to, to climb Everest. Um, so he's he's well known there, and he was trying to um, establish some sort of a, a you know a business that he could actually make money from, um, as opposed to doing his engineering job, which is what all those guys were. I mean, they're engineers, and they they would get paid sort of you know like a couple hundred rubles a month for the for that job. And then because they had climbing skills, they did like steeplejack type work where, you know, it, it could be chimney sweeps. It could be washing windows on high buildings. It could be, um, you know, one of the jobs Alexi told me about, he said, oh, yeah, we, we do this all the time because um, where we fill in the cracks, where the wall, the prefabricated walls are made in one factory and the prefabricated floors and ceilings in these high rise buildings are made in another factory and they don't match up. And so once they get the building assembled, the wind blows through it. And so they would hire these guys and they could make like 1,400, 1,500 rubles a month, like going up on these buildings and filling in cracks or washing windows and painting and stuff like that. So that's um, often what, how they were getting by. The advent of maybe a joint venture thing where they could bring Westerners in to climb and maybe get paid in Western currency for that. Squirrel that away. Then, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and it was a, but it was also a time when that wasn't, you know, you had to have government connections. And if you didn't have government connections, you had to have connections with the other government, which would be (laughs) sort of a mafia type operation or whatever. And, uh, and, and I think, and Bally Baird is, he's no longer alive, so he can't just, you know, won't come back on me, but I think he had some mafia ties because when we landed and, um, you know, had to go and get our luggage out of customs and there was like an official way to do it and it could take three days to hear something maybe and he goes no i have a friend we, we'll go this gate and perfect and so we entered the you know the the, the oh, customs yeah. holding I've, I've lived that story <laughs> no 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 come here come, yeah and we, it was we like, go through this line <laughs> okay. and it was like that like you know sort of separate I mean, separate entrance and then go into these warehouses where there was, you know, then, as I told you before, you know, there was just like, oh, there's, you know, cases and cases and shelves and, you know, rooms full of like gray market stuff from the West. 
And so, you know, they're like, oh, you want TV? You take, it's free, everybody, for you. Box of Levi's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that shit would be under lock and key. <laughs> because it was still at a, at a point, like, this is June or July of 1990. July of 1990 is when we went over it. And, um, and so it wasn't, it, the whole perestroika thing wasn't really in, in full bloom yet. And, uh, um, but we, uh, landed in St. Petersburg, spent a day kind of touring, went and saw some touristy stuff and then, uh, got on a plane, flew to first to Moscow. And then from there, uh, Moscow to Dushanbe, which is the capital of Tajikistan. And that was the, the, the stand that we were going into the, 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 uh, Pamir mountains from couple of different destinations there um we uh, and we got into Dushanbe and and uh we ended up at the 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 alpinist hotel which was um and it was started for people going adventuring um because it's a you know like get a month off or whatever in the summer and you want to go out to the mountains someplace and so and and you know you didn't have to go climb seven thousand meter peaks to enjoy that area i mean it's really 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 beautiful country and so um, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and and so we're there. We end up at the Alpinist Hotel, and we run into um, Mark Miller, who is a friend of mine, um, a, a, a British climber, and he and a guy named Andy Broom, I think, is who he was had that guiding company with. And they had just been on Peak Lennon with uh, it was a total of five, so they had three clients with them. And there's a standard route on Peak Lennon. It's one of the seven thousand meter peaks. And if you want to become a you know a part of the Order of the Snow Leopard. Um, in the Soviet Union, you have to climb all the seven thousand. I think it's all five seven thousand meter peaks, and so there's quite a um, a drive to try and get to get up on Peak Lenin, and uh, so they were up there with clients. And I guess it's the Camp Two, and I don't know the exact you know order of how they do things, but um, they get up there, and Mark and Andy look at where this Camp Two is, and they see these Seracs up above, and they're like, "We're not going to sleep there." And, the, and there's like 50 fucking people there sleeping in that spot. You know, they're in that camp. Okay. And uh, and so they go, no, we're not going to sleep. Like, I don't, you know, I got a bad feeling about this Sarge kind of moment. And um, so they back off and pitch their tents. In the night, that Serac, go, like it had, there hasn't been an incident there. That camp has been safe for as long as people have been climbing Peak Lennon. So that Serac goes that night and uh, 47 people are swept out of that camp whoa 45 of them killed whoa and one dude gets just like ejected by the air blast like way down the slope he's found like walking in the snow you know heading down you know by the time the fucking sun rises the next day because all this went down at night wow and uh so that happened they assisted as much as they could with you know recovery and search operations um and then they and then with their clients, they bailed. They're like, okay, we're fucking out of here. And uh, so we run into those, run into them. And, and Ace and I had, be, because of the luggage limits flying from Europe, like it's 20 kilo limit or whatever. And maybe we had a special dispensation where we got an extra 20 kilos or something. But that ain't much. Going climbing for that long. Yeah, in the winter. It, like well, no, this was the summer trip. Oh, this was the summer trip. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, but and, still, that's not shit though. Yeah. And so we had this like very small barrel. We brought some f- freeze-dried food and stuff. And uh, so we run into uh, Mark and, and Andy, um, 
and uh, I think it was that guy's name. Maybe I'm blowing it, but um, there and they they go and, and since they came out early, they had a bunch of food left, and they said, "Hey, what are you guys? Uh, yeah, what are you gonna eat? What are you what are you what are you gonna eat? Because they're and we told them, oh, they're, they're providing everything for us.' And he goes, "Have you had the food? <laughs> Do you like I, nan and goat? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been great." <laughs> um, the you know hand grenade chicken, um, which is prepared by dropping a chicken in a 55 gallon oil drum and tossing a grenade in and and then you know pick out the feathers and go to town you go to town and (laughs) it's in pieces so you can like that was kind of our joke they said well if you guys don't have you know food that you like you're gonna fucking die and they said we got a bunch left um we can sell some stuff to you so we gave them a bunch of money and got some food that they had brought in from the uk awesome and it was a lifesaver like literal these literal yeah like these uh little i don't know christmas pudding kind of things and oh man there was some really tasty stuff high calorie good bang for the buck um so we uh from duchambe we take a um that's where you get on the helicopter i, I may be wrong he may we, we drove from duchambe to jurgatel and that's where we get on the helicopter to go into the mountains Okay. A bit hazy, um, at, at, <laughs> it, it being that long ago, um, and hung out there w- and uh, waiting. And there are these old, you know, they're the old hind MI whatever. Yeah, like an MI seven or MI eight or something. Uh, maybe. Yeah. This was nineteen ninety, Trevor. I, is, I don't know what they numbers. They have the it, same ones there. No, okay. <laughs> they're still and, there, and they're just re- repainted orange instead yes. of you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so. We we get the get on the helicopter. Okay, we're gonna fly everything in for this base camp. And the Russians they have all this stuff, you know, that they've they've flown in these, you know, the canvas tents. They've got like a, in, I mean, in the base camp below, you know, uh, peak communism, um, there was a, they had a sauna that they built. I mean, it's like it, it was super cool. Um, what? And what are who are the people? Are are they like military people or who's, no who no the no so, that are... so the people who are going in there mm-hmm. um are are they're, they're virtually all civilians okay and there's only a couple of western guided trips my friend tom hargis was there i ran into thomas bubendorfer who's an austrian guy and he had i think he did all seven of the seven or all five of the seven thousand meter peaks that summer okay so he could get the snow leopard thing and mm-hmm. um and uh and hargis was there with clients um, but for the most part, it was it, it's Russian people who are spending their summer holiday in the mountains. Okay, perfect. And uh, and so um, and there, so you fly in with these like okay, there's like 15 of us in this helicopter and a dozen gigantic propane tanks. Yeah. In you know in the cabin with us. Perfect. Because one, I'm just like, well, it'll be quick if it happens, you know. And I wouldn't uh, worry about a helicopter. Yeah. It crashes. It's going in every direction. Well, <laughs> yeah. As Along with all of this flammable Stuff. gas, yeah. Uh, anyway, the uh, so we flew in and and, and we didn't uh, we hadn't acclimatized at all, and that that camp is at like eleven thousand five hundred feet. So first week or so, there's not a lot getting done, and um, uh, just walking around. Ace and I had skis with us, um, and I had I'd seen a couple of pictures that. Uh, um, back in St. Petersburg, you know, there's like Alexei who had done, so what they had, they would have these national climbing competitions and Alexei was the national champion a couple of times. And the, the, and I don't recall exactly how they do the, you know, delineate the little, the different disciplines, 
but he was the guy in the mountains. Like he'd, he had, he had won in the mountains a couple of years in a row. Um, and I think there were, there was a sport climbing or rock climbing type competitions as well. Um, but he had, you know, and, and it's, and it's basically like, okay, in this time period, the com- competition is okay. It's happening in this particular mountain range and it's who can do the greatest number of new routes or of the hardest level, you know, in the time window or something like that. Wow. And he's, so these, these guys are very, very good. And, um, and so when we were in St. Petersburg, he was showed me, and he had all these black and white photos. Um, and, and now that I see it, so I think they're, they're, they were called the NEVA agency, N-E-V-A. And I remember that was stamped on all of these black and white pictures, but of all of these different mountains all over the former Soviet Union. Um, and not just in Tajikistan where we were going, but in the Aksu area, um, stuff in Kyrgyzstan and the Tian Shan where I eventually went. Um, these, I'm just looking at these pictures of these mountains. I'm like, are you fucking kidding Big, me? huge walls, granite, just like savage yeah. wilderness. Yeah, that alpine that Aksu area. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the walls there are. I mean, the, the peaks. They're just they're they're amazing looking. It's like they're, Yosemite type walls and stuff like that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 then also, you know, big high altitude things. Like I know mm-hmm. that I remember that back in the day, like. There was there were some Soviet American climbing exchanges that went on. I remember Henry Barber had gone to the Tian Shan and he had soloed some peak there, and I'd read about that in Mountain Magazine or something. So I'd known that you know there's diff- there's some stuff um, was there, but just like leafing through these photos, I was absolutely blown away. And that's like and things that were in the Caucasus as well. I mean, there's an incredible amount of climbing to be done there, and. Uh, so I, I didn't, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to solo a new route on peak communism because that, you know, that's, I kind of figure that should, should be, that's the biggest thing that's, here. That's and, what you're going to do. Yeah. And so, and this is the, um, let's see, it must be the, the Barodkin pillar. Okay. It must be the, I guess maybe we're on the North side. Moscow, the Moscow, anyway. It's big ass mountain, big ass peak. Yeah, I don't think anyone's gonna like. You know, if you get the facts slightly wrong, yeah. nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody knows, it. man. Yeah. yeah, I, I would like to. You're not getting an angry telex from Russia about this. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll DM me yeah. on some social media kind of thing. Um, but so the first week we're just hanging out and and we're Ace and I are looking for ski objectives. There's like this peak. Peak fourth is what we called it, but it was peak of the fourth party something Congress something. You know, there's like these intensely political names for all of these peaks. <laughs> those communists a, were that's not, too much of a mouthful. Yeah, they're, they're not super creative. Those communists. No, they're no. not allowed. No, they, to be. They, they no, were, this is a peak that celebrates an event that happened with some people, the majority of whom didn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's sort of. Uh, so this. Um, so we saw this peak fourth and, and we thought, okay, that'd be, and that's like 6,000 meters high or something, maybe 6,400. And, uh, um, so we thought, okay, that would be a good objective. Uh, there was a 5,400 meter peak called peak Vorobiova. And w- as we were going up to peak fourth, I looked over and the, be- there was a, like a North face, um, beautiful sort of D plus type, uh, snow slope leading to some very steep ice runnels through a rock band at the top and um i thought man I'm, i should just go climb that so we went out and scouted peak fourth came back and i i think that night i packed my stuff and i went and ace came out and shot pictures and i sold it a new route on peak Foro biova uh and came down then we got our skis we went back to peak fourth we tried to 
ski off the top um, and the conditions weren't good. And we, we were on, you know, we're both diehard telemarkers at the time. So, uh, free healing it, free healing it. Yeah. yeah. Which basically meant, you know, <clears throat> carrying two sets of boots. Yeah. That's the pain in the ass is you got to use those silly boots. Fucking pain in the ass. Yeah. But which are not that great for anything else. Not much. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. What? So, okay. So you, it's a great story. We just bounce right. So you went and sold, sold this new route. You're just yeah. like, Oh look, there's some, some ice lines up there. I'm just going to go climb it. Yeah. <laughs> what's what what's in your rucksack there buddy like what is this what is this like like what do you, you're like i i mean you're looking at it from down at the bottom and you're like i think i can get up that yeah i like I, what what is that are you dragging a rope are you just, no, you just was, have a little so, back like what do you how so, do you approach that you've never been there yeah. no one's been there there's no beta there's nothing you're like i think would, i can climb this you, mountain would you lay in front of your feet and then yeah. throw in your bag yeah <laughs> man like what does that entail in, in the 1990 mark twight's head what are you taking with you no one's going to come get you if you can't get Batteries down. Batteries for the Walkman. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I know no. those came. Well, I didn't take spares because it was going to go down so fast. Ah, okay. okay, it's quick. You think so you can do it in a I, couple hours? Yeah, I think I can do it pretty pretty fast. Because it looks like the face, you know, so they actually had, you know, reasonable topographical maps so we could okay. figure out the elevation. So okay. if I'm on this glacier at, you know, 4,400 meters or whatever than the top of that thing. It's, you know, I'm going to, I get a thousand feet out of the way in the approach. The face is 2000 feet. Probably the first part, it's all sort of 50, 55 degree kind of ice. I know I can run up that. Okay. I don't know totally what's going to happen in this rock band. Cause I can't, I, can, I, I know there's, I, I see ice going into this feature the ice disappears, but then it reappears down below. So, so it must. So, it has to get there somehow. Yeah, there's some ice in the middle there somewhere. Maybe I, I am sure. And what's the rock like? Is, yeah, um, not wonderful. Okay, I mean it's not granite. It's like some kind of really something that, fractured. Yeah, bullshit. It's, it's it it's better than the Canadian Rockies. Okay, um, but worse than Chamonix. Okay. So and I don't. But again, you know, yeah. not being a uh, there might be some granitic intrusion of you know but i i, I don't know and okay. this is it was it it it, it, it you know it's, it's stuff that had eroded you know things that eroded away around it it's mm-hmm. more as opposed to like the canadian rockies where it's a big uplift yep you have the easy slopes on the one side and then the more vertical faces on the other side where the split happened and uh um so i i i take a small day pack okay um and do you ever, I do you take, ever rope in it to get down or what uh, do you I don't believe I did okay I because I would have tried to if I'd had I no actually I know I didn't because okay. I ran into something that I would have tried to back rope had you I had, had, had I had a rope um and that uh I, I know I mean I had two spare tools because okay. I was in the era when <clears throat> ice tools break yes and that you know that is my connection to the mountain so um yeah, I'm pretty sure I had two spare tools. Maybe maybe one for the you know, in the sake of you know, just lightness, going light, um, or, or whatever. And and it and it goes off just about like you know, we get up really early in the morning, do the approach in the dark. He sets up his camera and gets his puffy coat out and starts the stove and hangs out. And I go for my morning <laughs> later, man, jog. I get you know, um, okay. And I and, and the the lower slopes go exactly as I thought. You know, mm-hmm. it's fifty fifty five degree ice and and it's in really good condition. I run up that um, one steep section, sort of uh, halfway up the face, um, but but nothing. 
bad happens. And then I get up to the final rock band where the ice appeared and then disappeared and then reappeared. And there's like an 18 meter column, dead fucking vertical, hard, brittle water ice. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And, yeah. And you're 1,500 feet up or something? Yeah. You're Something like that yeah. at that point. And oh, boy. And I'm just like, I can down climb this and that would be okay, but I think I can do it. I mean, I'm not dead. So it's just like, it's going to totally depend on the ice condition. Like if I hit it and you know, the whole thing falls down, then hopefully I'm not in the way. Uh, but it's a, it, it turns out it's a, it's, it's a bit brittle. Okay. Um, really scary. Yes. And, and the, and the, the column is, it's probably like four telephone poles in circumference. That's not real big. Uh, Mark Twite. <laughs> um, one hence my modern con- American. Yeah, <laughs> one. I was, I was pretty. I was pretty skinny and light at the time. Not so you. I, I mean now. Me. Yeah. One modern oh, American. Around. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Excuse me. Um, I was not tracking Trevor Thompson. Uh, uh, so th- this, uh, I hit it. The, the ice was good enough. Okay. You get some penetration, and, and you know, didn't have to swing overly nothing you know it wasn't huge dinner plating i wasn't like chipping away at it till there was nothing left mm-hmm. um but it was narrow enough that feet on the rock kind of thing maybe my back against the rock at some point i was bracing between the the cliff and the the, the uh ice feature um and then once i was above that there was there was no go there's no way to down climb it so now wow. i gotta get to up over the top and and somebody and there was a normal route okay um up this peak uh, and, and the, and the Russians, and, and so in, in the, um, there's like a base camp, you know, the, the, the manual they bring in with them every year where all the notes of all the climbing that gets done is like, okay, it's, it's, yep. it's this. And it, here's, here's the people who did it. And so like their record keeping was extensive. So I knew that if I'm standing on the summit facing to the mm-hmm. South, that I need to trend down and left because that's how the walk up is. Perfect. And, and then that took me out back out to the main glacier um, which left me sort of upstream of Ace, and then I just walked down to him, and we went back to base camp. I mean, it was. Do you remember how long it took you? I mean, it, I think we were back in base camp by two or three in the afternoon. I mean, it was. Okay. I didn't, yeah, we didn't yeah. spend a night or just anything. We left early in the morning and yeah. got back. Yeah, and you, you climbed yeah. it in half a day. Or, yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay, and cool. And and so that's that took me to fifty four hundred meters. Um, and then Ace and I thought, okay, well we need to do this progression. We'll go to peak fourth next. So that's going to be 6,000 or 6,400 meters, whatever. I think it might be 6,000. And then we'll try and climb Korzhenieska, which is 7,000 meters. Um, and there's an obvious route that's not being climbed on the south face of that. And um, and then I'll be fully acclimatized and I go solo peak communism. And uh, um, so we tried peak, we you know got to this top, couldn't ski off, um, but skied from like three quarters of the way up most incredible corn snow I recall that I have ever skied and um and and Ace is I mean he was there as my photographer and sort of climbing partner should I need one and uh and he and I had done a lot of stuff together and he was shooting for um he sold a lot of pictures to Patagonia at the time and and so I remember from one of those the the two times that we we skied on peak fourth um uh yeah there was a double page spread and Patagonia catalog there was a, I mean there was awesome. a bunch of really incredible imagery from that trip that that uh he he 
got and um, will be seen again at some point here. Yes, sir. <laughs> Talk about that maybe. But uh, um, uh, we waited again for better conditions, get back up, and we still couldn't ski off the summit. I think we were about 100 feet below. There's like a little bit of water ice or something that we couldn't ski down, but then did the whole descent back to base camp. Uh, next, and, and the weather was just good. It was day after day, just good. And that's the And that's like almost... I mean, you want it to be good in the mountains, but you don't want it to be that good because there are no rest days when, like, you just feel like, okay, we got to take advantage. We got to go. Yeah. We got to go. We got to yeah. go. The Russians were going to climb the Romanov Pillar on Korzhenevska, and um, and and so right next to it was this ice line that I saw that had never been climbed before, and so I said, Ace, we should like go up there, and I'll you know you, you go to the bottom of that route with me, and we'll just do it like we did the other one. I'll solo it, and I'll come back down, and you know. We'll, link up and go back to camp and uh so we go we do the approach with the russians because the two routes are going to start from the same point and we get up to a pretty high bivouac we we climbed faster higher than um to a higher point than they did um and and then uh so ace and i bivouacked the, the weather turned that night and got got bad and so it was like well okay we leave boom and go back and the Russians climbed through like the next three days of bad weather um, and got to the top of B. Korzhenevska via the Romanov pillar, the Romanov pillar came down and they're like, so what did you guys, did you guys do that route? And we're like, no, no, the weather got bad. I'm like, but you didn't, what do you mean? I said, well, we go so light that there's, you don't, we can't, we don't go climbing in bad weather. You know, you don't climb through the bad weather. You don't sit it out. There's nothing in the pack, man. I'll die. And, and, and they said, ah, we, we would very much like this freedom, but, <laughs> but for us, because everything is recorded, they're part of like the master of sports system. Okay. They have to succeed. Like they get docked points when they fail. So they just stay on these routes regardless. That's like just, picking Whoa. away at them that's the russian way they just endure right yeah through I mean, everything that's, that's like the uh yeah. what is it that miracle on ice hockey team right they, okay they lost to the the u.s mm -hmm. and then they ended up with a bronze medal and they were shunned when they a bronze medal yeah. in the olympics and they were shunned <laughs> when they got home well which is the same thing well they could have been in one of those countries where shunning had physical consequences. <laughs> Let's just say, yeah. I recall some story about a soccer team from someplace in the Middle East that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Anyway, um, proud so, of being so, American. So they they were the Russians were like kind of blown away, like that they didn't know what to make of you know what I think I called my 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 uh, lightweight alpine dartings <laughs> or something at the time just because we like go and the conditions aren't good you go you go down and then and then you try again when it's when it's when it's better but they had a different imperative they were you know operating under and uh so i at, at that point i you know decided okay i'm probably acclimatized enough i can go try this and i'd identify there's a incredible looking line like it looks it looked like a beautiful frozen waterfall going down the north side of peak communism um there's a hole so that like there's ten thousand vertical feet of relief uh for that face wow and there's about six thousand that go up to this plateau and then you would go across this plateau and then the last 
you know, you probably gain a little elevation there and there's another 3,500, 3,000 feet to get to the summit on much easier terrain. Um, but the lower 6,000 foot face is, uh, um, it's super steep and there's a couple of, uh, roots on, on, on each edge, but there's nothing in the middle. Um, there's like this, the East pillar, there's a route that Bally Bearden did on the left that was technical. And I think won one of the awards for, um, in the competition at some point. Um, and then there's a, a, a check route on the right. And then the easiest East pillar route, uh, to the right of that. So right in the middle, there's this thing that appears to me to be like a fucking frozen waterfall running down the middle of this face. That's gotta be <laughs> the you know, biggest waterfall ever. A couple of, I mean, it, it of the, the, the steep ice portion, that was probably 2,500 vertical wow. of it. I mean, it was massive. And I was like, okay. Are, I, are you totally stoked about Like, are you, what's oh, your stoke factor here? Are you like, I'm in uh, Russia, they're paying the bill. And this uh, is some uh, shit that no one's climbed? Yeah. And, and I'm, I mean, surrounded by these people. I'm just, I'm just looking at stuff for like, I could come back here every year yes. for probably 10 years. <laughs> this could be a project and, zone. And not climb it out. You know, like, yeah, like rad. it could be super cool. Yeah. Um, so I see this route and I'm, I'm just like, okay, I need to, you know, I've done the little thing and then we did a ski thing and then we failed on the other thing. And, and, you know, TikTok was like two weeks left in the visit or whatever. And so I go, I think, man, that's, you know, binoculars, how I'm sort of looking at it and, uh, looks really steep. So I decided to take a rope in case I have to back rope a couple of pitches this time. So I, uh, Ace walks out part of the way with me and then sets up a tripod and the time exposure. So he's got my headlamp going across the glacier and I go, uh, start up this thing. The lower slopes are totally fine. And I get up, I don't know, a thousand, fifteen hundred feet to the start of where this thing, this frozen, this miraculous frozen waterfall is going to, you know, start. And it's nothing but powdered snow plastered onto the rock. Ooh. It's like, it's not ice at all at all. It's, pretty crappy quartzite feel like slippery kind of weird rock um and I'm like okay well that's uh i try and you know go off to the right and up and then traverse back in and see if it's any better and this is like shit and so i start down climbing and uh ace sees that i'm coming down and goes comes out to meet me and um and then we walk back to base camp together and i'm like well okay it's just like powder snow fantasy like it looks amazing he goes that would have been the most amazing route ever if that was a route um and uh and then he decides to go with the russians and go and go up the east pillar um and i said you know i'm gonna hang out for a day and i'll i'll decide what to do you know maybe maybe i'll follow you guys maybe i'll try and do something else but just go see if you can get see if you yourself can get to stop at peak communism you know uh, by the normal way from this side so he goes off with the russians and um and I'm sitting in base camp, you know, and then I'm like the self-loathing kicks in and I'm just like, <laughs> fucking pussy. God damn, you should have climbed that fucking powders. And you can, you can find a way. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so, and that leads, you know, into the evening. And I'm just like, fuck it. That route that the checks climbed on the right side of the face, that's totally doable. It's, you know, there's a little Serac at the top. It looks a bit dangerous, but I'll be moving really fast. And so I ended up packing, you know, in the middle of the night and just like, going by headlamp, finding my way to the bottom of that route. Um, and right when the sun came, I started climbing in the sun, right when the sun came up. So it was perfect timing and that everything was 
I mean, I, I recall having to traverse off of this, like it was just relentless 50, 55, 60, 65 degree ice for thousands and thousands of feet. And at one point I recall like traversing off onto this little like rock spur so I could get off my fucking calves. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just been front pointing for like 3000 feet in this hard black ice and, and my, and I'm just like, what's going to happen? Like what happens? Do they explode? <laughs> is it like compartment syndrome and your skin splits open and what you is know or calf something? Failure. <laughs> like, I know that like they don't stretch anymore because they're so <laughs> inflamed. Wow. And uh, and so I was able to take a break on this you know uh, on this uh, sort of rock spur, climbed a couple of pitches up the rock I think, and then traversed back onto the ice when that got too hard. Finished out um, on the plateau after whatever. Uh, I found a way by the little Serac at the top um, where it was a bit steeper. And I get up on this plateau and I go across. Um, I see Ace's tent put pitched. Um, and so I go over and I get some water from him. And he gives me, he's like, I'm not feeling acclimatized. I can't go. And, I, and so I uh, grab a water bottle from him and he gives me his camera because um, mine doesn't have a self timer on it. He goes, you're going to want to take a self portrait on the summit to prove you were there. And uh, so he, he, yeah, he loaned me a Nikon FE two, which left him with the F three, I think. Um, and I continued up uh, on, on, on the, nor- the normal route, got to the top um, later that day, climbed back down um, and met up with him. And then we descended the, um, the, the pillar and, uh, all the way back to base camp, and then within like three days, we were on a you know, were back. We were on the helicopter and out. Okay. Okay. And and, uh, and it, it, I mean, it was. It, it's crazy getting to the top of any peak in the Soviet Union because there's crosses, and memorial plaques for the dead, and the top of peak communism. I mean, there's a bunch of fucking names up there. Really? Oh man! I mean, it's multiple sort of. It was multiple installations at that time of crosses with different plaques, and some of the plaques are full. You know, it's like progression of years and this and that. And, 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 and some point, you know, some avalanche, you know, wiped out a camp with like 10 or 11 people in it or something. So I'll name, you know, they, they've got their own plaque because there's so many of them. And, and there were a bunch of fucking people up there and some of them, you know, and I'm just looking at like time travel, you know, some of these people, they, again, they don't, a lot of the, um, the crampons that they're have on their feet to go up, they've, they're made, they, they're homemade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some guys might have an ice axe from the West, but somebody, but some of them would have something that was, you know, more local ish. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the clothing, the insulation, I mean, it's just, it's, it's dire looking. Like you just go, yeah. my God, I, I don't know that I'm, the I'm not that all over again. There's no, there's no Patagonia. Yeah. N- no. And, and uh, I just look, I'm like, I'm not that tough. Yeah. I don't think I could do it with. Yeah. The condition, you know, what these guys are with the equipment these guys have. Um, and uh, so I was going up past one guy and he had like a uh, and he, he was kind of struggling. He was probably still 1500 feet below the summit or something. And and uh, I passed him on the way up and then passed him. He was a little bit higher on, on the way down. He was with a group of people, but he was in like a um, if you remember, like from the 70s, the wet look um, oh, yeah. ski outfits. So he had like a one piece wet look ski outfit, Perfect. you know, like. And, um, that it didn't work out that great for, it's a, that's a very slippery fabric. And so apparently that, you know, after I passed that group on the way down, um, sometime later that night he slipped and like took the, you know, did the ride for life. 
Wow. Um, and, 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 but people are super ambitious and they don't know that they're not supposed to be able to do this stuff. And so they just go out and try it and remarkable thing. I mean, it was amazing to see what I would like, how does someone with this amount of skill get 7,000 meters up on this 7,500 meter peak? And what made them think they could do it? Is it just like they didn't think that they couldn't? Exactly. They, they, they didn't realize that they couldn't. So, of course, yeah. they could. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was me, walking, the one walking around with all the self-imposed limitations, not, you know, not any of them. Yeah. And uh, so we got back down to the base camp and we uh, flew the helicopter out to Jurgatal and then however we got, I can't remember, back to Duchambe and, and, um, uh, and flew back to St. Petersburg, and then and and there was this. We had a, a night, and I I don't you know it's just I remember waking up in my clothes, um you know just empty vodka bottles and you know everywhere. <laughs> the room's and still spinning. The, the room is still spinning. There's you know there's like eight or nine Russians passed out in various places around this apartment, and and uh, I mean it was it was one fucking hell of a party. It was so cool. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, they do and, know how to do that over there. Oh man, it's it's where I learned the idea of crushing the cap, which it, it became kind of a, a, a joke for me after a while. It's like, oh yeah, you open the bo- vodka bottle, you crush the cap, because that way you're gonna finish. <laughs> you can't stop it. Can't stop it. You, know, <laughs> you drink till it's empty. I mean, I guess, and it's not like wine. It's not gonna go bad. Yeah, but it's it, it's you, you've you've demonstrated your oh, commitment, oh, man. Oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm tracking. And, yeah, and it's not going to been there. And, and there's and, and there's no way to say no. Like no isn't that is something in the culture they don't take no really well. It's just like it's it's not in the language or something or can't or won't or no. Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Especially if it's related to uh-uh. food being served or been there. Um. So when we actually on, on a. a Prior to getting back to that party, on the way out, we were a bit early to get on the plane back. And so there was a, a like a, a kid's rock climbing camp in some mountains nearby. And so we went there for like three days. And they had these, uh, I mean, Ace shot these amazing pictures. But these guys, they don't have rock shoes, like technical rock shoes or anything. And, and Ace and I had, we left, you know, I can't, I, I think I just, I don't think I had any baggage when I went home. It was just like, you need this jacket. You need these shoes. You need, here's my boots. Here's, you know, oh, you like telemark skiing? Well, here, take our skis and our boots and just fucking wow. knock yourself. Like, You'll go wild in out. the fucking mountains, you know? Good awesome. And, and just gave everything away because, A, we can get more. Um, but, and, and they had nothing. And uh, so I talked about, you know, sort of the homemade crampons and stuff and, and the ice fifis, which is a way of ice climbing where you basically have an aid sling attached to a, like a sharp fifi, like a meat hook. Yeah, like a and, fifi hook. Yeah. What? Exactly. And, yeah. and yeah, so yeah. You, you just gently tap that tip of that little fifi hook into the ice. And then when you weight it, the angle on the, the beak is such that it drives the 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 tip of the beak further into the ice and that gives you purchase. And so a lot of these roots like ice roots and very steep ice roots that have been done in the Soviet Union at that time were essentially aided because your feet are attached with a sling to this, this hook. So strange. It was weird. And I tried it one day, uh, this guy, Pavel, 
uh, he's, he's one of the climbers who was from Moscow, actually, not a St. Petersburg guy. And he, he, uh, um, he took me out to this, these seracs on the glacier and said, you must try Ice Fifi. It's very good. <laughs> I was like, you must try real ice tools. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> you, you must try crampons. Yeah. Watch how easy it wow. is now. And so the, so the rock shoes that they had at this rock camp, I mean, some of the kids are in tennis shoes and whatever, but mm-hmm. like Alexi and, and Nikolai, and they, they had like rubber galoshes. Mm-hmm. Like these, like socks dipped in rubber, uh, almost. Yeah, a, a, a bit thicker mm-hmm. rubber than than that, and then you just get them like three sizes too small. Just stuff your feet into them so they have some rigidity. Whoa! And they would do pre hard. They could, they could climb hard five eleven in those things, and I was just like, "Are you fucking kidding me? I can't climb this in like with chalk and my fucking rock shoes." And wow. you got rubber galoshes on, and and uh, and they, I mean, these guys are just blessed with a over you know overloaded with talent yeah for whatever they wanted to do you're you're the way you describe the people i mean i'm sensing a lot of uh you know you you think very fondly of the people oh yeah yeah those i mean and i wouldn't have gone back a second time if it hadn't have been for um you know the friendship of nikolai and alexi and uh vladimir was one of and that guy was really good and he'd been on some i think he'd been to the himalayas and he'd done some really hard like the kind of guy like oh yeah we ran out of food and we ran out of water and there was a storm but we just sat down and waited and then when the weather got good we went to the top i mean he's that guy mm-hmm. and um and uh so when we got we after this this camp, this this rock climbing camp where these kids and I was just like this is like their summer camp and they're fucking out here in the mountains and they're learning how to rock climb, and it's a very convivial atmosphere of all you know there's everybody's just here enjoying nature and it's like if you got a month holiday off of you know away from any industrialized city in Russia and you could be out in nature. I mean, it'd be the happiest time of, of the year for sure. And maybe, you know, one's life, depending on how they often they, they might be able to go. But it was that was a really remarkable experience, although we had run out of food at that point, And so we're eating the local food in that camp. And, it's, <laughs> and you know, it's like, OK, so we have this buckwheat porridge and uh, yeah, it's with salt for dinner and with sugar for breakfast. Perfect. But the exact same thing. And then maybe you'd get it with sausage and the sausage is made, you know, it's ground up meat product, whatever, and stuffed into these little plastic sleeves. And then the plastic sleeves, you twist the ends and then go into boiling water or something and that gets cooked. And then you take that out and you push the meat out of the plastic sleeve, you know, and it comes out and it looks like the inside of, you know, your Jimmy Dane, you know, sausage link type thing would probably look like if you cut the skin off of it yeah um but it's just weird because they're like okay please save the plastic because we we reuse that and i mean and everything it was super bland and whatever and uh but the the yeah the people we were with made up for you know any of that what was it Oh, not to interrupt, but it, was it was it weird for you going there for the first time? Just thinking, as we were talking earlier, we're from that generation where, you know, we grew up with the Cold War and thinking, you know, we might go to war with this country at any time. Like we could have a nuclear holocaust. We're on the edge of World War Three multiple times. That's all you hear about is the evil Russians and yeah. they've got their nukes pointed at us. Was it was it what was it like for you just entering that country for the first time? It was 
having grown up with that as you know yeah i mean i remember those you know get under your desk at school drills and i um and all like that and and my dad you know we had a we had a fucking bomb shelter essentially in our basement in seattle yeah um you know because my you know with with a I don't know, a year's supply of food and water and everything. We could just stay in that little storeroom and just be like, I can't fucking kill myself. But, um, <laughs> I'm going outside to die. <laughs> Radiation poisoning. Cause I can't catch stay the in. cancer. <laughs> exactly. Because I can't stay in here anymore. But I, I just, I remember boxes of like, you know, textured vegetable protein and shit like that in the basement. And, and so going there, um, with the intent of going climbing, like I'd, I'd, I'd read enough about people who'd gone and come back and it was fine. And, and the, um, the, there's an incredible, uh, climbing book called storm and sorrow. And I want to say it's by, it might've been written by Bob Bates, but, uh, and they were on, it was a group of Americans and they were on a, uh, a Soviet American climbing exchange there in probably, you know, seventies or something. And, and, uh, um, and there was a, a team of Russian women that were trying to make the first female ascent of Peak Lenin or whatever, and the storm came, and and, and I mean, it's just horrible tragedy, like radio transmissions that you know one by one they all die on the mountain, and you know this communication is going on, and and, and the the book describes that that whole chain of events, and and um and I think Chris Kopsinski was on that trip and maybe Jim States and some some guys climbers from the northwest that whose names that I I'd, I'd known and who were um had you know States and Kopsinski they had both climbed uh with Roskelly with John Roskelly and he was a guy who you know I looked up to and admired greatly and so they'd been on these tri- these organized trips and so it it's, it felt okay to go um like I wasn't concerned for my safety in any any way you know, especially with the exchanges that we um, that I'd had with uh, Alexi before going, and, and just thinking like, oh, they'd been they'd been one time before as guests for like five days at the Ensa in in Chamonix, the the guide school there, um, hosted by the French, and I'm just like, okay, there's enough contact. You're like, I don't feel like it's it's not a safety thing for me, um, but as you know, and I'd been to the Third World. You know, I'd been to Pakistan, I'd been to Nepal, I'd been, you know, been in Tibet, I'd traveled in China. Um, and so I was just like, okay, it's not going to be, uh, it, it's more modern, you know, and maybe when we get out to the mountains, it'll be very similar to the Himalayas because they're kind of an extension. Um, the, the Pamirs and, you know, Hindu Kush to the south. And, you know, it's all sort of part of this same zone. And, and uh, I thought, so, okay, they'll be like local people and, and uh, you know, of a different ethnicity than the white Russians in the, in the, the Western part. So I, that won't, you know, wig me out, but, ju- but going around in St. Petersburg and then, um, and just seeing, uh, like go in the subway and you get on the escalator to go to the subway and the subway is designed to be a gigantic nuclear fallout shelter. Wow. So like it's a whole fucking city underground so essentially. Can, everyone can just go down there when the Americans bomb them. Exactly. I have, I have yeah. ridden that subway. And and you go but you go and you get on that escalator and you go down and you go down. Yeah, it's and like you a, go it's like, down. It's like a four tier escalator. I've been it's, in the Moscow ridiculous. subway and it's, it's, it's like way that. down there too. Yeah. yeah, I'm right out of Red Square and then like that's actually was the like hardest, hundreds of feet. Yeah, it was the <laughs> hardest subway to navigate on the planet that I've been in because 
I didn't know there's no English and you're like, I had to go fucking four stops because it was just raining and I didn't want to walk. And I was like, I don't even know which train to get on. I had to wait, like flag someone down and like, ah, dumb English? American. English? Yeah. English? English? Which one? Which train? It was like, took forever. Anyways. I've done And that. then you have like this little coin that it's like from the, the I mean, the, it, it's like, wow, this is a, I think it's a Kopech. Does that, does that sound right? Is that the, sure. like there was the rubles were the, rubles were the and bills and then the the the, the, the cents version yeah. like the, the, the coin uh, version I think it was but anyway like and, and it you, know, you pick up a copper penny and it has a certain weight to it and you picked up one of these coins that was made of some mystery metal and it was super lightweight like a monopoly kind of weird thing <laughs> and, and, right. and they, okay did you put this in the in the thing and then you get on the subway and and uh, and you could and it was just like it cost you know whatever that coin was to ride the entire day perfect. Yeah, I mean, you know, you guess, and we would, we had people with us generally, um, whenever we went somewhere, who were translating, they would help, you know, like us. fixers, fixers, yeah, yeah. yeah. make sure yeah. that we didn't, you know, get on a subway and end up in a, you know, different part of the country or something. But um, your papers are not good here. <laughs> <laughs> the culture. The culture shock was different than anything anywhere else because a lot of things, you know, it looks Western. Especially St. Petersburg. And it doesn't work Western. <laughs> <laughs> and that was and that was really it. I mean, uh, there's a picture that um, Ace shot of me at some point, not on, that, on, on the next trip, um, after where I'm standing in a bread line, you know, because there was a bakery and it had bread and, and there's a line and okay, only what you're getting it is to stand in line with everyone else. And, uh, and so going and, and going around and realizing just how sort of destitute the country was in general at that point, go into stores and see empty shelves and, you know, people saying, Oh yeah, we think there'll be shampoo tomorrow. Wow. And then, okay, well, I need food. Um, <laughs> shampoo's not going to do it for me, yeah. but but I might come back tomorrow to get some because who knows when that's available again? You know, if I was like a local, yeah. Um, and, and it was it was really heavy to to see, and then and then the difference, um, you know, the, the total lack of a middle, you know, it's peasants, and then I mean, I won't say peasants as in like work in the fields, peasants, but just economically, yes, you know, impoverished people, and then the very very well to do. Yes, and the and and happily, I was a I was introduced into the culture by some people by the climbing community where so they sort of exist a little bit within because they've taken advantage of the education system. They have these engineering jobs and that sort of thing, but they're also, um, you know, on the outside of it, doing stuff. You know, not only is climbing a marginal sort of activity, but you can actually. But the thing is, if you if you rack up enough good ascents and you become a master of sport then then the government pays for you to go to go climbing for a couple months every year and so that's the objective for a lot of these guys is um and so they so they weren't part of the upper class they weren't part of the lower class it's just like you know climbers at that time the world over you're just in this mystery kind of you're you're just sole separate class or you're just kind of like outside of normal reality kind of everywhere yeah yeah, and so I didn't. I didn't. So it was. It was a bit unnerving in that regard, but um, but it, it never even occurred to me the like to 
like I had that reference in my head of the seventies, you know, late six, the cold war business and stuff. And, um, no sense of it at all when we were, uh, when we were there, except for flying to Duchambe and, um, you know, the, the, the airplane that we're on is circling the airport. There's the, there's the civilian side of the airport and there's fucking biplanes on the ground still <laughs> like, right. And those are like the commuter planes that would go out to the small, you know, from the capital out to these smaller villages. It's like they're bush planes. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but they'd be wow. like a, a 12 or 14 passenger biplane. Wow. And, um, a converted camel, you know, yeah. big, plane, yeah. you know, good, good size planes. You could put some people on them. And, uh, and so those are on the ground and there's, and, 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 uh, you know, and we're on this plane that's, it's, it's an internal aeroflot flight. So there's, you know, there's like these slung canvas seats essentially without padding without, you know, and then the, 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 there was meals to, because it's a long flight, they, you know, gave everybody snack and it's like a, um, two hard boiled eggs, a, you know, a good sized piece of bread and then some jam or jelly of some kind in like a sandwich baggie Perfect. that you'd have to kind of invert and Self-serve. smear on the bread or you know yeah, some flavor some flavor yeah yeah, yeah. um and, and 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 then the you know i just i remember because there's no padding the knees of the person in the seat behind me were in my you know in coming through my seat into my back and those knees i recall not being that comfortable and like squirming the entire time and and so this is the civilian side of it thing and the plane banks and we circle over the other part of the military side of the airport and everything you know, it's just like high tech as fuck <laughs> like oh i get it the money inside this country goes to the military yes and that was like okay here is and it's a series it's like a line down the middle of the airport and total division of haves and have nots and it was i mean that that was the only sort of thing that harked back for me to, you know, the, the, the cold war era, the Afghanistan era, that stuff, just because Tajikistan's like, you know, right there, there. Yeah. Wow. And it, it was, it was super cool, but, um, to cycle back to the, you know, waking up with the hangover, um, pr- that night over, you know, many shots of vodka, um, we were looking at, you know, Alexi was giving a little slideshow and um, showed us some other peaks. And he says, you know, we were out um, in the Tian Shan last, you know, last winter. We went, we had a team of 15 climbers that went out to uh, um, uh, Peak Victory, Peak Pobeda, I believe, um, which is like a one of the seven, it's like a 7,400 meter peak. It's like the second of highest peak in Russia, I think. Um, and uh, like, of the 15 you know, 12 of them came back from with frostbite and, 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 and nobody had ever been out there in the winter. They were the first trip in the winter. And just, but Alexi had these pictures of the South face of Cantangri, which is 7,010 meters tall. Um, and it's the northernmost 7,000 meter peak in the world. It's the most beautiful fucking pyramid, like just classically shaped the South face. And it's, and it's most of the rock on this peak are, is marble. Like actually marble. Whoa. Yeah. Like it's like it's it, there's there's intrusions of this of other rock and on the north side it's not that but the south side there's all this exposed marble and so wow. when it changes from ice to to that rock it's almost indistinguishable like you can't tell 
Whoa. Um, it was super good. It was like one of the most beautiful. And it was like a little, he said, oh yeah, this is from my, he had a camera. It might've been an Olympus pen or something, you know, or a Russian equivalent of that, but it shot, um, they took 16 mil cinema film and, and, and shot and, and chopped it and put it in canisters and, and, and that's what they'd shoot on. So that's it's like cool. a little half size, weird yeah. slide thing, you know, the, and it looked like it must've been tungsten film because it had a really, it shot out in daylight. So it was totally blue cast oh, blue. to it. Wow. It was really wild. But I saw this picture and I'm like, holy fuck. He goes, it, it's a total death trap in the summer when it's warm because it faces south and it's a lot of rock fall. He goes, but in the winter, everything will be frozen. And he said, we would like to go and just try and climb the normal route from the south side in the winter. If you would like to find a partner to come back and try to climb the south face, we will happily host you again and we'll organize everything. You're like, I'm coming back. Fuck yeah. I said, when? And because now we're like end of August or whatever, um, of 1990 and he goes if you can come back in december that would be great and we'll go out there for the month of january and you know whatever like holy fuck this thing is incredibly beautiful like it it is the first time i'd actually seen something in like a peak that okay I'll change my life to go try and climb this fucking thing. I need, okay, I need that. Yeah, I need. Yeah, it. it just just pulls on your soul as yeah. a climber. And but but I don't do any more research about it. You know, like <laughs> guys, I've seen the picture. I've got the local contact. He's got to pay for made. It, Yeah, I just need to come. You know, find partner partners. Ace is like totally game. He, he's like, okay, if you, I can't climb that with you, but tell you what, and we on the you know we by the time we got back to you know, Europe, we had a plan and totally in place that he's, um, you know, we're going to get the funding that we need to get there. Um, and, uh, I'll find a climbing partner for myself. Ace will find, he got his, uh, John Faulkner who, uh, he lived with Ace in Verbier, um, and was another, he's a skier and, uh, ski model climber, et cetera, a guy who's super capable. And they'd done some, um, they had already done some trips like, ski trips in the backcountry in India and stuff like that together. So um, he said, and H just said, look, I need to have someone to look after me for a lot of glacier travel and shit like that. And if you're yep. up on the face with somebody else, help me get um, around, help me. Yeah. Roped up and that kind of thing. Exactly. So he's put this team of four together. Um, and then the Russians said, okay, we'll have eight of us and we'll, uh, we'll all go out there. And, and that, and I got back to France and I was working on some, uh, action movies there at the time and had met this guy, Michelle Fouquet. Um, and, and, and we got along, he was a safety guy for some of these movies and, um, and an, an accomplished climber. He'd, he'd tried to do the, uh, tried to climb the South face of Lhotse with Vincent Fien, um, you know, some years before. And, uh, um, and they had tried to do this Everest turbo thing where they acclimatized. That was a really interesting thing there um so th- these were the early experiments with pre-acclimatization and at some point so in 19 uh i want to say it was must have been 88 when we were on everest um a group of guys tried you know breathed um used you know what would be the equivalent of like an altitude tent today which is just hypoxic but not hypobaric Okay. Um, to try and acclimatize to, to climb uh, Shisha Pangma or Cho'oyu, one of one of those two. I think it's Cho'oyu. Um, so one of the eight thousand meter peaks, and so they're in, in France, and, um, and and Patrick Berho was on that trip. Bruno Guvi, um, 
was there to snowboard down. Let's um, see, what's her name? What's her name? Periot, Veronique Periot, maybe um, was there to try monoski off the top, which uh, and so they were breathing like nor you know um, normal pressure, but hypoxic uh, formula for you know three weeks or whatever before going over there, and and apparently that didn't work that great for acclimatizing. A um, bunch of people got sick and et cetera, but I know that Veronique monoskied off the mm-hmm. top, and I think. I, and I think Bruno might have snowboarded off the top again, but but they realized like okay, if we were going to try to do this pre-acclimatization thing, we need to do it in in hypobaric conditions, because that's the only way to to really cause the physiologic changes you, you need. That you could go like take a helicopter to seven thousand meters and be okay if you were acclimatized in a chamber somewhere to that. Yeah, and so they were spending like twenty <laughs> hours a day. Um, in this hypobaric chamber in Paris. And to me, it makes way more sense to do it that way than the tents that they have now because oh, it works. The, the issue is that you're not, you're not breathing less oxygen. It's that it's thinner. It's the same amount of oxygen. It's super thin. That's why your body has to work hard. But there's, and, and which the, is why the chambers work as opposed to the tents because the pressure, so the, it's the pressure differential. Exactly. And, and, and so with, your your body's not going to respond to um to less pressure without that stimulus yeah so you can uh, make some minor physiologic adaptations with you know it'll just hurt low level you know lower o2 levels anyway um but they had tried and and they'd gone so it was chuki was on that trip uh christine jenan i think there was five of them total i can't remember stefan shafter was this Anyway, they but they they got to like eighty three hundred meters or something on Everest five days after leaving Paris, after having pre acclimatized, and then bad weather you know came and they didn't have the and they, I think they had booked their plane tickets like for ten days round trip or some shit like it's just like a crazy thing. There's no way to, or it's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they got really high and and uh, so he had a Chuki had a resume that looked you know. You know, we both, been, yeah, it looked like we should get along just fine. You know, we're both good climbers. We both have Himalayan experience. We both, you know, and uh, you know, it was not a great choice, it turned out. But he was my choice to go. He was available, and he's good, and he wanted to go, and he could bring Neutrogena on as a sponsor. And, Perfect. Um, and uh, so, anyway, we we flew back to Russia on uh on December 21st of 1990. So shortest day of the year going to the northernmost 7,000 meter peak in the world. It will not be warm. <laughs> no. And, uh, and we have to get out to Alma-Ata first. And then from Alma-Ata, we drive to a small village called Kagan, spelled like Kegan's name is. Um, <laughs> uh, and from there, it's a helicopter ride into the mountains. That helicopter ride is like 210 kilometers of horizontal travel. No one has ever been on that side of Cantangri and uh, before that did not access it by helicopters, never been accessed by foot. The South and Ilchek glacier that we would be landing on, it's like from where we'd land on it, it's like 48 kilometers down to the toe of it. And no one had ever been up it or down it. No one knew. The only thing that the Russians knew was that 12 kilometers off the toe of that glacier is the Chinese border and there's a military outpost there. Don't go here. Or if the helicopter doesn't come get you and you have to get out, that is the only way you're going to get out. And we don't know what will happen. You know, 
Yeah. What are, you don't you don't know what happens if you roll up there. You won't no. die. You yeah. might not die. No. Faulkner's fine. He's like, I got an Australian passport, dude. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> like, Peace. It, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> exactly. Everybody loves Australians. And it's like, you two Americans, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, the um, so we're so so we we, we fly to St. Petersburg again, December twenty one. It's cold. I mean, it's super fucking cold. And uh, w- one of the the funniest things, and we arrive at this building, and 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 uh, um, Alexei's apartment is you know on the top floor. It's either twelfth floor or fourteenth floor, or something like that. It's, it's not super high rise building, but it's tall. And and it is you know, the days are short. It's super fucking cold. And we go into the bottom of this building and we start walking up the stairs cause the elevator doesn't work. And, you know, we're dragging our bags up cause we can't leave them outside. It's, it's getting progressively warmer as we go. It's like super, it's basically the temperature on the first floor is the same as the outside temperature. Second floor. It's a little bit warmer. Third floor. It's a little bit warmer. We go up and it's, you know, they've already laid out this big dinner cause they know that we're coming. And, uh, so we go in and the people are walking around in their underwear and their shirts off. <laughs> Perfect. Bunch and, of big and, old Russians. And the fucking windows are open. And, uh, and I just, I'm like, you guys, this is, this is a terrible environmental situation here. You got, <laughs> the heat is on. It's going out the windows. You're dressed. It's like a sauna in here. Holy fuck. Let me take my shirt off. And, um, and, and I said, Alexi, what is fucking it's going on? He goes, Oh, it's triumph of Soviet engineering. We, have no insulation in the building. <laughs> so, and and central heating. On first floor, they are wearing fur coats. Here, we are in sauna. <laughs> and then we ate dinner. <laughs> I mean, I just laughing. So, it, it's one of those buildings, so there's no insulation. There's cracks because the windows don't fit in the prefabricated walls, you know, exactly. Wow. And probably totally fine most of you know in in the summer part of the year warmer warmer parts of the year um and and, but in the winter like just desperately fucked up cold down in the lower levels and and they'd been in that apartment building long enough like his his parents and and their parents maybe even you know who knows how far back but they but they lived in it long enough they had seniority to be they, as someone floor. moves out up they move up a ladder up yep. a floor and up a floor <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> exactly and uh so this this whole um we have you know amazing dinner that they they, they laid on and you know then the you know, drank again and so the next morning they wake up and they go okay now now the bad news and the bad news is that uh there are no airplane tickets to go from St. Petersburg out to Almada in Kazakhstan which is like LA to New York and then maybe partway into the fucking ocean. I don't, you know, it's a, it's a long distance. Yeah. And, um, so, and so what do you mean? There's no plane tickets. Uh, the airport didn't seem that busy when we flew in they go, Oh no, there's no more airplane, the internal airplane tickets for Westerners in 1990. We can wait until January one. And the, you know, that, that list will replenish and, yes. and then we can get on and we could, you know, you guys get tickets out, out there. Um, uh, and we thought, okay, that's 10 days away, 11, you know, we're going to lose too much time there. We won't have a chance to acclimatize, you know, it'll, it'll, that it's, it's too restricted. We got to figure out a way. And so they said, well, we can take the train. I said, well, how long will that take? I, they said, well, I think it'll take about five days. <laughs> like, well, fuck it. Who's, does anybody here know anyone else who's taken a train across Russia in the fucking winter? 
I didn't think so. All right, let's do that. So we get on this, and, and we were totally psyched because we got on the train from St. Petersburg to Moscow. And it's like a high-speed train. It was super comfortable. All of our gear in this like one car, cargo car, whatever. And like in a very short amount of time, six hours or something, like we're in Moscow. And then we get off the train and we have to move to another part of the train station. And then, and, and then we're walking up to this train like, no, Alexi, this is not, this is not, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be fine. So we travel hard class. So basically the last cars on the train, which don't have insulation. They don't, there's like wooden benches inside. The windows are just covered with filth. You can barely see out of them. Uh, the toilets, if you go into the car where the toilets are, it's basically you sit down on a seat and you shit through a hole straight onto the train tracks. And that's going to be awesome when it starts freezing and backing up and like, and there's no longer a hole there that, that took only a, l- a couple of days to happen. Uh, so this train starts moving and that's where the five days started basically and you don't have your iphone to keep you busy oh five days exactly on a freezing russian train going north with a bunch of soldiers going home on leave whoa who what are they going to do the first thing that they can drunk they're fucking drunk yeah they got a case of vodka each yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and so there you know there's drunk belligerent young soldiers there's oh yeah americans yeah, it was, it was, a, and, 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 you know, we had eight Russians with us and, and, you know, they're all sort of burly climbers and they know their way around. So there was no, no trouble of any kind, but, um, but we're just trying to amuse ourselves, telling stories, looking at maps, reading books. And the, and the, and the train starts going, leaves Moscow and goes at like 27 miles an hour or whatever it is. And it'll stop. And. I'm like, okay, we'll stop one hour. And you run into the village to try and find any food that you can get. Because um, we didn't want to start d- dipping into our expedition food yet. Because we were like a pretty, we were fairly budgeted with that. And um, and so we'd run in. And that's where the breadline photo happened. And then there was, we were, you know, on outside of our car a couple of times. We were trying to wash the windows off. But it's like minus 30 so out or whatever. See, yeah, so we yeah. could see some of the countryside going by. Um, and so we basically spent, you know, the, those five days and, you know, either, you know, in our sleeping bags and, you know, bundled up in our clothes on these hardwood benches and, and, um, and it was really fucking cool wow. because, and I'd, I've never talked to anyone since who's ever done that trip. Like you wouldn't volunteer for it. I don't think. And how many people are going out there in the winter to climb that mountain or yeah. go to that region? Like not, not many people have done it. And what do you, you just, you're bundled up in your sleeping bag, you're reading books, you're listening to your Walkman, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Talking with the you know our Russian friends, um, and they're practicing their English and 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 that and uh, and we're trying to make some pl- you know we're looking at pictures, we're trying to make some plans and you know, all the stuff you would do on any sort of Himalayan scale trip during that process of acclimatization as you're getting closer to the mountain. And uh, so we got out to Almada, and uh, so we spent Christmas on that train. Um, and we got out to Almada and we went up to a, a ski area just outside of town. And it was, um, it, because it was a higher elevation than the city itself. And so we spent five days there hiking around and going skiing because once we, um, we get on that helicopter in Kagan and fly into the mountains, the, 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 the helicopter is going to land us at like 11, five or 12,000 feet. And there's no lo- way to go any lower. 
So if you're not acclimatized and you get dropped off at that point, um, you're going to get fucked. Um, <laughs> so we spent this time at this, this ski area and it was, and it was like a, they had a FIS sanctioned downhill course, the chairlift that was like a one seater chairlift. Like it was, it, 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 there was like infrastructure from the fifties in, uh, uh, at a ski zone where they were hosting, you know, skating events, um, on an international level and, and world cup, you know, again, because where's all the money go to the military, not to the infrastructure, not to anything fun. It's all military. Yeah. And it was, and, and I, I, one of my like distinct memories of that thing. So we were staying in this, um, like it's in a host facility where they would like, okay, their winter athletes would go to train or whatever. And so it's like dormitory style. And, and, um, and they had these towel, you know, they're, you're issued a towel, for, you know, cause there's a shared bathroom and you can take a shower and that sort of thing. Um, and these towels are made of some kind of fabric that is averse to water. <laughs> like it won't absorb it. And all you can do is like use it to kind of almost squeegee the water off your body and then kind of air dry for a while. It's like, like it was duck canvas or something. Fucking yeah. Just a weird mystery woven plastic kind of stuff. There's your towel. There's, there's, there's your towel. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and, and that felt very sort of Russian to me at the time, you know, at that, at that time I was like, oh, this kind of says a lot about, you know, that you need a towel, but you don't exactly, you haven't figured out exactly um well if it doesn't get absorb any water then you never have to dry it out that's cool um but also it doesn't make you dry it doesn't like it it, it doesn't do the job of, of the towel the way that you want it to and and uh so after the you know the brief period of climatization there we got on the bus and went out to kagan and and then the helicopter came and got us and in in two or three flights to get all of the personnel. So four of us, Chuki, myself, Ace, John, plus the eight Russians, plus all of the propane we would need to melt snow to make water for a month that we were going to be out there. Food, gigantic. Those guys had like a gigantic military surplus or whatever, triple walled canvas tent. They brought wood to make a sleeping platform so they'd get up off the ground. So they had this... And, you know, the sleeping platform in this tent, the kitchen tent was also their sleeping tent. And they just like eight people sleeping on top of each other, essentially, because it's shared bodily warmth. It's a, like it's like they had the living in cold conditions down pat. We were so fucking far off the back um, when it came to that sleeping on the ground, for example, like where it's the coldest. Yeah. Dumb fuck. Yeah. Like it just and uh and we'd and, and I knew that we were going to eat a lot of fat, you know, while we were there. So I had managed to bring a gallon of olive oil, you know, to and it, and and we got it was so fucking cold when we flew, uh, after we flew out there. Um, uh, I mean, it was minus twenty seven was the average temperature in base camp for the four weeks that we were there. Wow! And so everything froze, everything, and it's that cold plastic. You know, it, it's brittle and it breaks. What kind of um, what, what kind of equipment are you using? This ninety. 90, 90 yeah. 91 so yeah. right there and you know i'm thinking what what is what is the height of like what's what's your winter climbing clothes what, what are the what are you wearing are you are you a patagonia guy yeah i mean okay. i've got i've got a, a a sun ice suit one of the like high altitude one-piece suits that okay. were made in canada yep. for um a, a bit and then i've got a whole you know suite of patagonia clothing at that time um and unfortunately you know i the i, I needed you know, the stuff that I took was stuff that I had for the Alps. 
Um, so, you know, we talk about waterproof, breathable fabrics, but in those conditions that are that cold, you need fabrics that are breathable. Okay. Fuck waterproof because yeah. there's because it's so cold. There's no water. You've got to just move the sweat away from your body and out and and out and get rid of it, or yes. or, or, or you end up trapping that insulation or that moisture in your insulation. And you get an ice layer inside your clothes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then it becomes a then it becomes waterproof in both directions. Yes. No longer breathable at all because you have this ice. And, and you're it just was building more and more ice inside of you. Yeah. 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 So we didn't. I didn't done any research on arctic travel you know at that point i had no idea it was going to be that cold for that long um the olive oil the fat was gone in a week whoa and you know and we were i remember we had this conversation with the russians because they had these bricks of lard that they were just like chop you know slice off a bunch of lard and put on a piece of stale bread or whatever and and they would eat it and we'd go man that's really bad for you this is back when i believed that you know dietary cholesterol was a thing um uh, or a problem um, that you could increase your cholesterol by eating foods that are, you know, high in saturated fat. So I was giving the Russians a hard time that, you know, like, man, that's really bad for you. And it's so like two days after our olive oil ran out, I was like, um, <laughs> Alexi, about that lard, uh, I'm feeling a little cold. Could I maybe just have a little taste? And it was so fucking good. I don't know what kind of something sort. in your body craved it. Oh my God. Like I need this. Your body intrinsically knows what it needs yes just like okay you need this this needs to go in every meal you're gonna make pasta you're fucking putting lard in it i mean it was (laughs) like and it's just this like white bricks of lard and and they're like oh yeah it keeps you warm this is like fuck yeah i guess uh yeah this that's the that is that is the story. And what do you do in there at base camp? I mean, you're 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 sleeping on the ground on on your probably on your thermorest type mattress or something, and you're oh. you're existing. You're hanging out in the in the in the cook tent. Yeah, as so much you can as we, eat. Yeah, and, and then you're just bundled up in a full suit and and shivering and trying to trying to not lose too many calories. I mean, we're we are. Um, so we each have our individual tents. Okay, because you know privacy. You know whatever. Like we're oh, yeah. yeah. And and I, I think Gregory sponsored us at that point, and so we had, and they were making tents and packs and this and that, and and uh, um, so that I had, uh, I had uh, two foam pads and a th- and a thermorest underneath me. Um, I had two sleeping bags. Had, uh, both of them were, uh, you know, I had a very one very both of them were made by Feathered Friends up in Seattle, so they're down sleeping bags. One of them a very lightweight and uh, bag. And then a, a, a heavier, like a minus 35 thing. And so I put the lightweight one inside the, the, the heavier one. And then the lightweight one stayed dry because all the moisture collected in the, in the heavier one. And then I would turn that inside out and try and dry it, which led to some problems because you can't, you can't dry it. Out. It's not warm enough, even in the sun outside to, yeah. to dry anything out. So it, we would either dry them out in the kitchen tent or one day, um, I had uh, I had this like hanging stove set up in my tent. You know, this old market. It's like a blue way stove and uh, a butane stove with a hanging setup, and you hang it off the little nylon loop. You yep. know, in in the upper part of the tent. And so I would t- habitually um, I would get up in the morning. I'd make a hot drink for myself, and then I'd go to the kitchen tent for breakfast or make whatever other food. And I'd leave my hanging stove in my tent going okay just to warm it up to warm it up to try, try and dry the sleeping bag yes out, right and then and then after you know th- 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever in the kitchen tent i'd come back and get ready for the day to go out and ski tour or you know whatever we were doing so one day yeah, it sounds uh, super safe it, yeah it's 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 yeah leave a i'm telling you leave an open flame whatever okay so one day 
um, I forget about the stove and I leave to go ski tour up to the bottom of the south face of Cantangri um, directly from the kitchen tent. Don't go back by my tent to, um, you know, turn that stove off. So we go, we do this reconnaissance. We, uh, it might've been one of the times we tried to build a snow cave at the bottom of the face so that we had a base to operate from. And, and, uh, um, we get back and we're getting skiing closer and closer to camp. And I get this, I'm just like, fuck, that's, that's a weird burning smell. I wonder what the fuck that is. And we get a little bit closer, a little bit closer and it smells like feathers. Like it smells oh. like, and so I'm like, Oh fuck. And I totally, cause I'd totally forgotten. And it had a full canister of fuel. Oh, it was, it's been so, all day. So yeah. And it was, so what had happened, it got hot enough. So there's a windscreen around the flame on this yeah. hanging stove setups. And, uh, um, and so it had gotten hot enough that the, the hook that it was hanging from at the melted. top of the tent melted through the loop that dropped onto my sleeping bags yep, and it's sitting there on your sleeping bag burning and it's burning, but it does, the flame doesn't go out and nothing catches fire. It's just hot enough because the, the windscreen just gets hot and it starts melting it's melted through nylon. Yep. It's burning feathers. It's another layer of nylon. It's another layer. Oh. It's more feathers. It goes through the thermarest. It goes through the two foam pads. By the time it runs out of gas, it's two and a half feet deep down in the glacier. Whoa. That I was sleeping on. It's gone through the tent floor, obviously. I mean. Everything. That could be kind of fatal. Yeah. Oh, I freaked. I, I thought. Like Fuck. how are you? What are you? Our trip do? is over. I'm gonna no. die. We're gonna, you know, but we're also so far out. There's no radio contact with the outside world. There is nothing. Like we, the helicopter says we will come back on this date. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and so, and, and that's the only kind of we. And, and so it's just us. And so I'm thinking, holy fuck, man! I just destroyed my sleeping bag and this and that. And um, and our trip's over. There's no way we're gonna be able to clean. You know, I was just like losing my mind. There's like yeah. a giant hole in my tent. I don't have a foam pad. That's like not doesn't have a fucking gigantic hole. You've got no the... insulation from the ground. You've got no insulation to sleep in. You've got, yeah. there's feathers all over the tent, oh. you know? And we're, so we're, so we're trying to like gather up these feathers and stuff them in plastic bags. And then, um, and, and so we, the Russians are very, very resourceful people. <laughs> and, uh, so we managed to like cut up, a, cut, cut apart some stuff sacks. I had some, uh, seam sealant for a tent or something with me that's kind of like glue we heated that up and so we patched the inside of my heavy sleeping bag and then we stuffed as many of the feathers as we could back in and then glued a patch on the outside wow and and it fucking held for the rest of the trip i, I mean it was pretty and yeah it was well that's awesome. This mi mismatched color. But then <laughs> they were just like reassuring. No, it's okay. She's like, this happens. Whatever. We fix it. No problem. And so, and this is about the time, you know, a, 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 the shortly after we had a shortwave radio so we could listen to what's going on in the world outside. Shortly after we land on the glacier, Gulf War One kicks off. Oh, boy. So we listened to the that last, it was like a three week war, whatever. We listened to the entire thing on the shortwave radio sitting on a glacier in the middle of fucking you know, close to the border with China, wow. this and that. And, and, um, and, and flipping out like, holy fuck, the world could end, you know, and we'll be that helicopter will never come back. And then we're going to have to ski down this glacier. And then we're going to be like guests of the Chinese military. And then, and, and so th this, 
that minor hurdle, you know, overcome, uh, we never moved into the kitchen tent. We still all had our, 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 you know, situations, but it was, it wasn't really fascinating exercise and survival living essentially. And it, and it made us the, it totally changed our relationship with the risk we're willing to take. Okay. Because if you, you know, yeah, you're on a trip in the Himalayas somewhere in the normal conditions, maybe you drop your glove or whatever, you're going to, you know, use the spare sock and you may lose fingertips, but the conditions that we were in and how windy it was there. And I said, so the average temperatures minus 27, the lows, like the, the lowest that the Russian guys recorded was we were up around 6,000 meters on the normal route on Cantangri um, to acclimatize. And it's somewhere around minus 50. And that's like, you drop a mitten, you're going to lose your fucking hand. Yeah. So you are do you're doing acclimatization climbs and you're, you're, you're still committed to the objective of getting up this face. Oh yeah. And you're working at it every day and you're skiing and staying fit. Trying to figure stuff out, sleeping high on the normal route. Chuki and I tried to climb the north face of Trident Peak, okay. which is um, like a 2,500 foot face. And it was fairly technical. And we got a, um, a you know, cup, you know, 1500, maybe 2000 feet up it. I don't, I'd have to look back and, um, yeah, maybe 1500 feet only. And, and we got up towards the tail end of the day and it was going to get dark. Um, we got up against this rock band and we called Ace and and John on the radio and said, Hey, can you see where we, you know, get your binoculars, look at what's above us. Can you give us some idea? And they just go, look, it looks super technical. Like you're going to have to belay which means it's going to be, someone's going to be standing there in the cold and, and, and it, and it might be doable in the dark, but I don't know. And so then, and so Chuki and I turned around and went down because it's like the last thing I want to do is be on some big face in the, you know, essentially in the Himalayas, uh, for, you know, at night, yeah. minus 35. I mean, know, be, because that, that kind of cold is just, it's psychologically oppressive. Like, how do you maintain the sort of desire to climb this mountain in those conditions? And, and did you believe, did you the whole time believe you were going to be able to pull it off or maybe it will get warmer and we'll be able to do it? Or what was, what was your psychological state? I, we were, we were convinced that we could do it. Okay. Um, but the real issue was, and, and we, but we knew that, uh, the wind had to die. Mm Mm-hmm. Or we would not be able to do it. Okay. Like it, that would be, that's going to, this is going to be the decisive factor. So we're, and there's no way to get a forecast. There's no way, you know, the jet stream is down. You I mean, there'd be like these two and three mile snow plumes off the top of the mountain yeah. days when it was super windy. And they're like, okay, that's, that's like the Himalayas in winter where it sounds like a hundred MSR XGK stoves just going. It's like a jet stream. Just like, yeah. Yeah. It's lowered down close enough to the summit of the mountain that it's, yeah. that it's moving all that snow. And so, and and that was the thing. It's just like if it's if it's this cold with that wind, it's no nothing is happening. Um, if it's this cold and the wind settles, we can probably do it. But it was so cold that it affected our decision making about how light to go or how heavy to go. And and the and, and I look back now and I'm just like, yeah, well, we, we hadn't figured out how to do things like that yet we hadn't figured out the whole single push tactic thing where you know you you just climb nonstop, <laughs> um but you have to be very light to do that and so what we what ended up happening was we we settled on a compromise and a compromise is never fucking good it never yeah. it never turns out in these type of situations um 
And that compromise was ended up being that we were too heavy to go fast, but too light to go slow. Yeah. Meaning like, okay, the packs are too heavy. We can't run up this face as, you know, in really fast time and, and keep warm by keeping moving. Um, but the packs are too light. We don't have enough in the packs so we can actually actually stop, stop and sustain your warmth. Put up and, a little tent, yeah. get in a sleeping bag, yeah. make hot drinks, make hot water bottles for the next block of climbing and that kind of thing. And survive. And survive. And okay. And and so how's your team like how you're you're you believe you can do it through this. Your your buddy Ace is with you and his part. How's your French partner? What's what does he think of this? He's um He's got an unusual relationship to risk <laughs> that I did not share. Okay. And he also was suffering under some social pressure that I didn't know about. Okay. So when he and Vincent Fien, and it would have been 86, I think, tried to climb the south face of Lhotse, which hadn't been done at that, you know, at that point. You know, this is like the, one of the biggest Alpine, you know, Himalayan objectives in the fucking world. And those two dudes go up there on their, on their own. And Vincent is like a total stud. I mean, sold the Walker Spur in winter. He'd done like he'd been in the Himalayas before. He'd done a bunch of really good shit. Chuki was not at his level. He was being sort of carried along on. I'm not going to say the coattails, but he was an unequal partner in that partnership. And uh, so they got up, and it was you know pretty high up on the south. The south face of Lhotse is like 10, let's just say it's ten thousand vertical feet. They were probably six thousand feet up. Wow. You know getting now getting into the hard part of the climbing and conditions are perfect the weather's perfect climbing conditions fucking perfect and chuki made him go down because he was i mean he was like me on the south face of nipsey right next door like i was super insecure it's my first himalayan trip i was you know freaked out and just because jeff had been in those situations before he's like i I had the advantage of having an older mentor be tied to the other end of my rope. Yeah. Who, yeah. no matter how freaked out I was, no matter how scared I was, um, whatever. Kind of punching above your weight a little bit. Yeah, but I had the reassurance and, and his reassuring like nature of like, oh, this is just totally normal. Yeah, of course, it's, the reason we came up on this route is because the climbing would be this hard. You know, I'm like, but I don't, climb you know like, <laughs> i can't climb that hard man <laughs> but i had that reassurance and and unfortunately you know, vincent and chuki were the same age same sort of era in french climbing and everything and so there wasn't a mentor mentee relationship so when chuki kind of flipped and apparently there was like big arguments and this and that and then oh, they, wow. it made him go down and then that got out into the climbing community in france and chuki had his reputation suffered a little bit as you know kind of being a bit of a pussy or whatever yeah. and then Vincent later got killed and 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 then so Shugi had no recourse no way to make it up right like no they couldn't go so on another trip he really he, has this desire to do something that proves that he actually isn't a pussy exactly and he's also not going to be the one to make the decision if it's if, if there's a decision to go down that's going to be made it's going to be made by me that's a dangerous situation which I didn't even realize was the case wow. at that time wow and which is you know, it's neither here nor there. It's just yeah. like, it's like, okay, if, if I had gone on that trip with partners that I had suffered with before, that I'd been through the shit with before, it would have been totally different. I was up there with Barry, totally, you know, would have been completely different. If I'd, um, I hadn't started climbing with Scott that yet, I had, I'd 
you know, climbed the Verdon with him, but we hadn't done any hard routes in the mountains. But if I'd been up there with him, would have been a different story, you know, because I understand the history. I understand, you know, what, where those, both of those guys are coming from. If Barry says, I don't like the way this feels, then that's the dudes you listen to. Yeah. And it's not a freak out. It's not it's just like this is based on decades of fucking experience. Yes. You know, but if uh, by the same token, if he says this is good, that carries the same weight. Chuck and I didn't have that history. Plus, we're coming from different cultural backgrounds. So we lack the ability to communicate intimately. Okay. Also, which is a, for you at this point, a requirement. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just like us. We got to We're out there. You know, mm-hmm. everything depends on us being, you know, the sum being greater than. Yeah, you can't the, be the second pot. guessing. You can't have doubts. Yeah. And so we went, you know, eventually we got acclimatized and whether the wind dropped enough that we decided to give it a try. And I said, and we, okay, there's this big ice fall in the lower part of the face. And we're just like, okay, it, it will, you know, we should try and get through that before the sun comes up and, and just keep, and, and then move throughout the day you know, after the sun comes up when it's warm, you know, we're going to, we're, you know, or maybe we'll, you know, sit down for a few hours after the sun comes up because we'll be warm enough and we can, you know, chop a little ledge or whatever and, you know, get the stove started. And, uh, so we start up this, um, and, and we've done what we think is a good enough reconnaissance of the face. So we start up and we don't, I don't realize that there's this whole piece section of the, like the, 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 face on the left-hand side is kind of concave and we've never looked into the back of that before. We've never seen it. We've never skied far enough up Glacier to look back into it. Had we done that, we would never have tried. Oh, it's 3D. It's a 3D face. It's not some big flat wall. Yeah. And there's just line after line after line of Cerax and ice gargoyles up on this left side. Oh, wow. And so we're climbing by headlamp and, and up and we hear this rumbling and we're like, holy, f- what and it's coming from a place where like, and we haven't, we didn't, we still have, can't see because it's fucking night, you know, mm-hmm. and headlamp throws maybe light for a hundred feet max. Yeah. So we don't know, but there's this rumbling and it's getting louder and getting louder. And, you know, we're thinking, okay, well, I guess we're going to die now. Um, and then these chunks go by like a couple hundred feet away Whoa. and we get dusted by the powder cloud and we're like, holy, where the fuck did that come from? Because we th- have like the photographs and we've been up to the bottom of the face and we've looked and at angles that we thought were enough. Um, and so we're just like, fuck, we got to keep moving and we go and it happens again. You know, another thing, probably 20 minutes later, another big ass Sarak event comes down and, and just, just obliterates our tracks that we have just come up and we're like fucking hell. Well, we can't go down, you know, everything's happening. It's like coming down and then going behind us. So we need to keep going up right right now and maybe you know that's the only way to serve you know to survive and we get up into the more open part of the face and then and and it gets a and and that gets us out into the wind are are you guys now simul climbing or belaying or what do you know we're just soloing mostly soloing on rope just soloing together yeah Yeah. and we have rope and we have hardware in case because there's this rock this marble rock band that we know we're gonna have to climb through up pretty high okay um, we, so we've got some knife blade pitons, you know, okay. and, 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 you know, a couple of cams and that, you know, ice screws. Um, and, but the ropes are in the pack and we're just going, you're boogieing. And, uh, um, and we get, we, we get out, we, we separate ourselves from the ice fall. We climb above it. We get, you know, we probably climb a thousand feet up the, the main sort of 
you know, 50, 55, 60 degrees ice face. And we get to a point where it gets, it's super windy. We're like, fuck. And we're like looking at, you know, traversing back and forth a little bit, trying to find some place. We realize, well, fuck, there's no shelter. We can chop a ledge in the ice, which we do. And we sit down. There's no room to pitch a tent or anything. We don't even get our sleeping bags out because we're, you know, there's ice screws, anchors, and that's it. You know, we're afraid we're going to drop something. And so we just cower there in our fucking puffy coats with the stove in between us. And we get some water, um, some snow melted, hot drinks, eat a little food. This take that takes a couple hours and guys getting lighter and lighter and the sun finally comes up. And still 30 below. Still super fucking cold. <sighs> but it's at least light now. And we can look back at what we came through. And the slope above it, the slope we had never seen before, and all the seracs and these ice features up there, and we're like, holy fuck, we are stupid. Like, we didn't do the due diligence part, you know, to, to, to the extent that we could have. We were wow. maybe a bit lazy in our research, whatever. We for sure can't fucking go down that way. Like, I'm not going to put myself in between the ice fall and that slope because there's no, if something happens again, you know, there's no... You, you got there, lucky going up. You're not going to guess you can get lucky going down exactly yeah and so we you know get on the radio and ace gets the binoculars out and so we start and, and we just realize okay it's 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 too windy and i mean it's it's windier than we can deal with it with this cold we're again too light too light to stay yeah too heavy to go fast yeah wow so we're gonna bail and so we head straight down the face into terrain that we don't know anything about and counting on ace being able to talk us through it as he's looking in the binoculars and talking to us on a walkie-talkie whoa so you're gonna you know get or at least miss maybe some features that you wouldn't be able to get through <laughs> oh the potential for yes. disaster here is oh my goodness huge jesus and uh and, and we 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 successfully down you know we down climb a ways we get to a spot that's too steep and there's this icicle thing you know in the snow um that we wrap the ropes around we, we repel off of that to get down this little ice cliff and and then ace kind of talks us in a gradually back through this broken terrain close to, to where we'd be able to join the path um that we used to access the face like the, the little the cool are coming up um but that was not threatened by these seracs above uh, we think and so we're following his directions and we're trending down to try and rejoin the route. And then, you know, you hear John come on the radio. All right, look out, look out, look out. There's an avalanche. There's an avalanche. We're just like, oh, you fucking <laughs> And so from that, another, you know, another Serac and thing kind of collapses off, comes off that slope. And it looks like, you know, we look at it and now we can, it's not just us hearing it in the dark. Now we're actually watching and we're watching it come towards us. And, like, well, maybe there's enough in between us, enough crevasses, enough features that, you know, it'll get swallowed. Suck up the big stuff. Exactly. And we're not going to get kind of hit. And, and, and that is actually what happens. But for the minute or so, it seems, it seems like hours. That's a pucker factor, huh? 30 seconds, probably, you know, when this is happening. Um, But we're just watching this come down like thousands of feet of face and then come towards us in this big fucking cloud is billowing and billowing and billowing and you can't tell if the chunks are in the cloud or if they've stopped behind it and it's just the, the air blast and um so it stops you know i 
and we keep going uh, down and and towards that threat. By this point, we're just we're you know going as fast as we fucking can, down climbing as fast as we can, and Chuki's just charging down um, faster than I could go, and uh, um, and. It, and after some time exposed to this, I mean, there was probably, you know, a, a, an hour and a half or two hours where we were back in this cool are threatened by those slopes. No but, choice. But no choice. Yeah. Um, you know, we got into it lower than we had the, you know, uh, lower than we had if we had just reversed our route. Copy. Anyway. Uh, and we get down, you know, finally get back down to the glacier. And I mean, I am fucking emotional wreck i bet i bet like you're just and, kissing the ground you're oh, like jesus this is like i've never made a mistake that bad in the mountains before and i was so you know we were both extremely fortunate to get away yeah. with it and now we're still like got 10 days before the helicopter comes so what are we gonna we're not going back up there yeah you know, this, this this route is like okay it's for a future generation it's 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 for someone with more you know, a bit more time spent. You'd have to come and spend and just live with that face, live at the bottom of it for a long time to feel the wait, pulse, wait for the peak the, conditions and just wait, yeah. wait for the right Figure moment. Out what the peak conditions are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way. And so we still got 10 days. We go back to the, you know, our, our, the, the base camp and, and, uh, and the Russians are like, well, we should try to climb the normal route then, you know, because, you know, maybe we get to come away with some kind of success. And, so we pack and, you know, over the course, of, you know, we probably rest for, you know, two days or whatever. And during that two days, we pack to try and get up on the normal route. And and uh, we climb for a day and a half or whatever. And and uh, sometime, um, and that got us up to this call where you could drop off onto the north side. And then it's be sort of a ridge climb to get to the top a couple thousand feet or whatever. And, uh, um and then as soon as we got on that ridge, we're just totally exposed to the wind. So we got to about 6,300 meters um, on the normal route. And then it, even the Russians said, this is stupid. Too, too They're like too brutal. really motivated guys. They yeah. want to succeed. They don't want to go home with, you know, a failure. Um, but they also don't want to go anybody to go home with any cold injuries either. Cause yeah. that's like career stopping kind of stuff. So, and um, so the voice of reason and, uh, um, we just, okay, well, this trip was a failure. We we're going to go down. And, and, um, I just, uh, uh, like I am, I'm okay with it. You know, we gave it a good shot and we got away. Like I got my skin on, on the outside of me and that's good. Um, so we go down, we start getting stuff, you know, packed because the helicopter is supposed to come in like a day or two days. And, um, and that day comes and goes no helicopter, perfect <laughs> fucking weather. The next day comes and goes. Perfect fucking weather. No helicopter. No communication. We start doing the inventory for food and fuel. We're, mo we're less concerned about how much food we have than how much propane we have left. Because yes. as soon as that's gone, we're going to dehydrate and you know, that'll be it. Um, so we get to the point where they're like, okay, if we, we can wait two more days, maybe three more days after that, we don't know how long it's going to take to get down this glacier, but we're going to need to, you know, someone's got to go all of us, all of us. Okay. Because there's, you know, we don't know what's down there, Yeah. but whatever's down there is further down. 
and it's yeah. going to be warmer. Yeah. And there's maybe going to be running water. And if we can get to that military post down there, then maybe there's a way to communicate outside for someone to come find us. So that's two days gone with no helicopter, three days gone with no helicopter, four days gone. We decide that the following day we're leaving to go down this glacier that no one's ever been down before. And is everybody pretty freaked out? Oh, fuck yeah. Everybody's just like, this is it. We're going to have to go for it when we don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. And we're going to, so we're going to charge up all of the small fuel canisters. So we have these big giant propane tanks and, okay. we're, and we're taking propane from those and filling the smaller, like screw cool. on fuel, can, fuel canisters. So we're going to yep. take all the portable ones or fill them up as much as, you know, that we can, Yep. You know, that is feasible. We can melt snow along the way. We can melt snow along the way. And we're going to take all the last food that we have, ditch whatever's not needed here. Don't need your climbing gear. Don't need a lot of shit. Just you know, need a sleep harness, bag. Harness, rope, skis, yeah. and we're moving out. And uh, and so we decide that, okay, that's going to happen on day five. Uh, you know, after, and that's day five. That's, that, that's helicopter arrival plus five. Okay. Right. And so uh, day five, midday, you know, we're getting everything ready. <laughs> Fucking helicopter turns up and and like and not only that they drop off four people <laughs> they come to get us and they're dropping off four guys who are going to go ski touring there and uh like oh, it's pretty wild and they don't you know a couple of them look competent a couple of the and the other two don't and uh I'm like that's oh, weird is that like a guided thing and a client or is this you know who are these people i i don't care get us the fuck out of here you know and we're like you guys what happened because there's there's and there has to be, you know, another, it was three flights to get in yeah. with all our stuff. We're only going to need two on the way out. But that means, you know, this helicopter has to come get us, fly back to Kagan, drop, and then come go back, get the other remaining people, and then fly back again. And so that's all got to happen in a certain amount of daylight. And we said, well, like, what the fuck was going on? And they said, oh, there was an inversion. And the, and the, and by the time the fog would b burn off late in the afternoon, it was too late for us to make two flights in here to get you guys. And so I asked one of the pilots, I said, did it occur to you that when it cleared off, you could fly the helicopter to the higher elevation above the temperature inversion and then just come the next day and they said it never occurred to them that that, <laughs> that, that could have been a solution. And it's one that I would have liked to have seen your face on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we fly out and, um, and, and, and then revert. And, and now it's the new year. So we can get on a plane. We don't have to take the train back. Perfect. And we get it. We get a plane back to Moscow and, and then on to St. Petersburg and then back to, uh, Sham and Verbier, uh, Chamonix for me and Chucky and Verbier for John and Ace. And, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a day of tourism in Moscow, and we get back to St. Petersburg, and then back to Europe, and uh, and and then like a couple of weeks later, get a phone call from uh, Alexi, and he said, uh, "Did you hear the news?" I'm like, what news? And he said, "Those four skiers that they dropped off." I said, "Well, no, that's not really going to make the news here. Well, I don't know what they did, but it, whatever they did, we'd not ever hear about it here." He said, "Well." It was a great tragedy. Oh, boy. And uh, so apparently they had not acclimatized before they flew in. So one of the guys gets like really fucking sick. Like pulmonary? Pulmonary demon style. Okay, oh, so that he really saw. Oh. So he's really sick. And they don't have a lot of recourse. They can't, they can't lose elevation from where they are. So 
that dude's sick. One dude says, you know, decides to stay with him. The other two ski down the glacier trying to find help. So they ski the 48K down the glacier. They do the 12K down to the Chinese military thing. It turns out that it's okay. They get communication. They get a helicopter that, you know, come back in. Um, so those guys do the first descent, you know, uh, you know, of the, of the South and Elchek glacier. And the helicopter goes in to, you know, try and save the other guys. They, they find the guy who got sick dead in the tent and no sign of the other dude. Wow. Just poof. You know, so he probably, that guy died and he was like, fuck, here I am by myself. He freaks out. He Goes tries down to, the glacier? Tries to ski down the glacier, skis into a crevasse, dies. Because it's that kind of glacier. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's like a heavy end. You know, they had the heavy ending to our trip. Yeah. Which ours, because of the sort of risk that we were taking out yeah. there, ours could have, maybe should have ended in that you know, in, in a similar way. It sounds pretty gnarly. I mean, do you feel like that was one where you escaped? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, yeah. that sounds. And, and, and more so not, not just with the, you know, that lack of communication with the outside world and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, just the, um, just the raw conditions, just man. The, the raw conditions just and the, that. and the weird social dynamic that I'd never experienced, you know, before, mm -hmm. like of, I've never gone on a, like a big route mm -hmm. or a big trip like that with someone I didn't know. I mean, that's actually not true because I didn't, I mean, I'd done a route in the Alps with Jeff Lowe before we went to Nepal together. Okay. But, but at least, you know, Jeff he's a, fucking Lowe. He's I mean, American. Like, he's kind of a legend. And it's yeah. like, you know, there's a, it's a little different, right? Did, did you, did you ever talk to that guy again? Or like, how did, how did that? Oh, I worked with, you know, worked with him thereafter. And then, okay. And then, um, and, and we, we did have a, uh, a falling out after you know because I, I wrote my article in the about that trip in the okay. American press. Okay, and uh, and yeah, it was called against the grain, I think. And I mean, it's it's a beautiful article because you know Ace took amazing pictures on that trip. Mm -hmm. Fuck some of and and uh, um, but I you know I threw him under the you know I just said it like it was and uh and he didn't appreciate that and so because so he kind of got another bad rap you know okay yeah it's just an American guy saying it but you know he's he um he didn't he I mean we never climbed together again we ended up working together a little bit continuing on the on the the movie projects that we were on but mm -hmm. did um, that yeah did that did that kind of like I mean it's kind of a weird question I guess but you were pretty always selective about your partners but was it is it like you know there's that kind of saying where you, you know you don't want to you don't want to date a, a female comedian or something, you know, if you break up, she's going to like talk shit about you <laughs> on stage. I mean, were people like afraid to climb with you because they were like, well, you know, not, not that you would talk shit, but you're, you're just brutally honest and you're honest about yourself. Like you point out your own shortcomings and you're not shy about pointing out somebody else's either. It's just like, that's what it is. Ben, I got to say that never occurred to me that yeah. possibility of like somebody not being interested because of the potential fallout. Yeah, okay. Or, I just, I'm just I mean, curious, I, you know, like that guy, like with him, yeah. this, this is a well-known dude and he didn't appreciate that and you probably weren't unfair, but you probably weren't flattering. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't recall the, just, just a, something to yeah, think about. Yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't flattering, but I, but I, th I think it was, it was fair and honest and I, mm -hmm. you know, pointed the same finger at myself for the bit, you know, the mm -hmm. behavior that I, that I found, you know, wanting. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, but it was, it didn't become apparent to me the gulf that was 
between us mm-hmm. until I had the experience of climbing with Scott where there was no gulf. Yeah. Well, right. I just I thought about that because like I remember an article that you wrote um where you had done a route I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it's the gift that keeps on giving or something. Route you climbed in the Ruth Gorge mm-hmm. with with Steve yeah. and someone else. And Johnny and, Blitz. Yeah. yeah. And I remember at the end you were just like, you know, you didn't enjoy it as much because you weren't as close to them as you were with Scott or something. And I thought, you know, and obviously Steve's a really good friend of yours. Yeah. But you were you're okay but that, to like But that was the first trip. Like that was the first trip and you're okay to talk about that of like, you know, it's just but the relationship's different. Yeah. Whereas, you know, some people won't say things that are uncomfortable like that. Yeah, I mean it, that yeah. that had to be. I mean it, the 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 fascinating thing for me about that trip was mm-hmm. that Steve and I met in person mm-hmm. in the SeaTac airport. Oh no shit! On the flight up there, it's just like reputation. Hey, all right, we're gonna do this. Yeah, yeah. And because and it was a funny thing because because it's like we should go do something together and this and that and a lot of mutual friends and people vouched for him and mm-hmm. and, and obviously we had only heard of each other or mm-hmm. whatever and. Um, and so I felt, you know, okay. And I just said, hey, I'd like to go, maybe go. I haven't really been climbing. So it was in a point where I was trying to retire. I was trying to quit, but not able to. And it's like cigarettes, right? You got to quit them a few times first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and so I said, I wanted to like go do uh, like a waterfall climbing trip or something. And he goes, and he just said, that's not interesting. <laughs> so we should go to Alaska and maybe we get up something, maybe we don't, whatever. And and somehow that sounded like a good idea. Um, but I invited Johnny Blitz along because he was a friend. And I thought, okay, if, if it doesn't, you know, at least with three, like if, if Steve and I go, you know, we're the only two people in the Alaska range in fucking February, you know, or whatever. And it's not good between us. That's going to be really not good. Yeah. And so with the addition of a third to sort of distribute, not only, risk, but also going into that situation. It's dangerous, man. It's super dangerous. It's, and you're more horsepower, it, the better. And I, I've been out to the Ruth, you know, and I, I felt that it's not as remote as like being out in Russia. But, you know, we were out there for two weeks and, you know, we told we told Don at Hudson Air, like, you know, come get us on this date. And we had a bunch of stuff we were going to do. And it's like he's like, yeah, I'll try and fly over if I have a delivery over on the Hilton side. Just so, you know, if you need a radio for something. But if he doesn't do that, yeah, you ain't talking to nobody. Exactly. You get hurt. You're just waiting, man. Yeah. And there was like maybe one plane that landed out there while we were out there. Wow. So, you know, this is early spring. And yeah. there was actually a, a British dude out there for half the time. Crazy British dude with his girlfriend. Wow. But other than that. What a honeymoon. <laughs> he's dragging her up like Mount Dickey and stuff. And oh. like she didn't seem super fit. And he was like this tall gangly British. It was hilarious. Ian, I still remember this dude. He was hilarious. Nice. So whenever we were in base camp we were out climbing a lot but we were in base camp and we'd just hang out with him and he was just so fucking funny i never even talked to his girlfriend she stayed in the tent but then we'd see her poke her head out and go to the toilet or something and and then he'd be like have her roped up and he'd be dragging her up something like within sight of base camp you know but yeah it was hilarious but but you feel that man you feel that when like oh when we went out just two of us and if somebody gets hurt you're just gonna sit there man yeah and 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 I don't think it's necessarily much different early spring than it was in the winter. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I, I, we were the let's see us three in the roost, and then there was one dude on McKinley by himself, and yeah. that was it for the entire Alaska range at that time of year. Yeah, there's not even anybody killed inside. The there's no planes yeah. flying over even. No, there's no so. 
And yeah. but the cool thing is, like Paul from T- Talking Air Taxi, he would be he'd every every now and then he'd fly his plane out to go ski touring. Okay, like uh, which I'm like that's fucking kicks. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, and uh, and he, and you know, and he, we'd been in for a while, and he he flew in and brought us a pizza. Yeah. What a dude. Yeah. Well, and it was cold. He goes, he said, I'm sorry, it's cold, but I had to go make a few turns first. So he, he got the pizza. He, you know, flew, landed his plane, skinned up or, or, you know, skied down from the plane and then skinned back up to the plane, took off and then brought us the pizza. And we sat and ate cold pizza on the roof with him. And it was, it was fucking great. That's a memory, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't, I, uh, I was just curious about those things. And I've, I've always like in reading your articles and stuff. I always just kind of appreciated just the level of honesty because I, I think that's important. I think I'm sure it was. It clearly is important to you for what you did of just not, not sugarcoating things or not pulling punches or just looking yeah. at things clearly as they are. Even relationships which are which are something where people are. It's like, a lot of times have a hard time, myself included, just really doing that or being that honest about things when, the honesty is not unhealthy. No, you know, and it's it it's like it's, I think it's, it's a good un- way to be. It can be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable but it's not for unhealthy. sure, but it's not enough. Yeah, and you know, you you were bold enough to just be honest despite the discomfort. Um, so I, I I think that's cool. Um, so, anyways, you you said in the beginning the mandate was we had to keep it under an hour, and I think we failed. So we uh, totally failed. On, but thank you, dude, because that was so cool to hear all those details. I mean, one of the the, the and the reason that this is this has kind of come up is um because i sometime recently i went back and looked at all my photographs from that russian trip and it was so so let's just say in the sort of the tail end of 2018 and i started um thinking about that and i went back and i found a couple that um that i didn't think were good back then but with a different eye of you know, more the eye of more of a photographer and than someone just documenting a climbing trip, um, I realized like wow some of these are really good. And then I thought about the the stories you know the the, the, the experiences that I'd had on those trips, um, but I didn't really talk about that that much because I was more interested in talking about the climbing. And so the the the, the train ride across there's. You know, there, there are there are more you know sort of rich details there that I'm sure that if I get access to some of Ace's pictures, um, that it would trigger some memories or he will have memories. Um, the idea that you know, yeah, we listened to the whole Gulf War on the shortwave radio, but we also listened to, you know, all the Russians got to hear their government basically ban 500, 150 ruble notes. And so they, they said, okay, the ban takes effect this, this day. If you have three days to turn those denominations into the bank, prove that they weren't earned on the black market, and then we'll replace them with, you know, 20s and 10s and 5s and whatever. Wow. But those are done. And these guys, because they worked on the black market so much doing steeplejack stuff, and they all had money stashed away under the mattress and shit. like All big bills. All big bills, because... You know, that's just more portable. Um, I mean, Vladimir basically said, I had enough money. I have enough money to buy a house, my own fucking house. And it just is gone. And I can't fly out of here. I can't call a helicopter. I can't get back to, you know, even if I could fly out of here, I'd be in fucking Kazakhstan and I can't get home to my, you know. And one of the guys was like, yeah, my girlfriend, she'll figure it out. She, she knows where everything is. She, you know, 
She's very He's resourceful. Trusted. She knows where to, she knows what to do. Yeah. Or she'll figure something out. She'll figure out what other black market people are doing to, you know, come up with the documentation that's required. So we got to watch them listen as they listen to that news, you know, for a week straight. Um, and then, you know, when we flew out, you know, they were all just like, fuck, 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 fuck. And it's not like you've, you know, you fly the helicopter out, you get to Kagan, you get a cell signal, you call, you find out. It's like, no, we got to, you know, get back to Alma-Ata and then we got to get, maybe we make a phone call from there, but maybe it's too expensive, but maybe, you know, and then we need to just get on the fucking plane and then we still don't know that, you know, for days afterwards. And, and so some of these uh, stories started coming up in my head when I was reviewing these pictures and it was at a, at a point where it was right at the same time as um, Dalila had was on a work trip in Moscow. And um, she'd sent me the picture of the camera store through the camera store window and all these beautiful old Soviet, you know, sort of cameras. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really amazing. She said, I would have bought you one, but I don't know what to look for. And so within an hour, I was just like, OK, this is what you need to find. That's amazing. You got on the Internet and was like, this is what I want. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and I send it back and it's and and so what had happened in 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 the, you know, post World War II is that Russia was awarded um by way of reparations from Germany. They got the, you know, the contacts factory and all of the parts that were in it when the war kicked off. Really? They got all of the Zeiss glass. Wow. Parts, you know, all of that stuff. Um went from and I can't remember the name that the place in Germany but ended up like they packed the whole factory um, and all of the spare parts and everything up onto trucks and took it some took it to you know Kiev they reassembled the factory they you know convinced some Germans to come teach them how to do it I think that's kidnapping but um, <laughs> uh, and 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 I don't know if they found someone who knew all of the processes or whatever, but, but in, in any case, starting from like 47 for three years, all of the f- cameras that were produced in, you know, under the Kiev name were all basically assembled from contacts and Zeiss parts that had, had been in stock in those factories when the war kicked off. So they're super badass. So they're super badass. Wow. So I, I said, look, I'd like to try and if you could find one like a Kiev, like the last year, I think was 1950 or something. So if you okay. can find a 1950 Kiev, um, you know, uh, it's Kiev three um, is what they called it. Uh, um, if you can find one of those, and, and with a you know whatever lens is on it, you know, I presume it would uh, that it would have been a Zeiss lens or something like that. If you can find one of those, that is my ideal pick. And then I said, and then there's a Zorky that, you know, was basically a Leica copy, mm-hmm. um, that maybe there's one, you know, something like that, that'd be like a second or third choice or well, whatever. The Russians but, copied everything, right? They have oh, Hasselblad yeah. copies and they have all kinds of copies. Yeah. So there's a lot of that technology mm-hmm. that they, that they had figured out. And, and so she go, has a day off after, uh, you know, you know, several days of work in Moscow and she, now she's got the shopping list and she goes around and she's like, looking everywhere she ends up you know this place doesn't have it this place doesn't have it but you should go over there but then she meets some guy in the street and he tells her about some other place and blah 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 she's in this building and her cell service is running you know like her her data is gone and she's (laughs) like and and it's a and it doesn't look like a storefront and it's a weird speakeasy kind of operation but when she finally gets in the door she goes in there's this old dude in there and he's got all of these cameras from back in the day that are um that are and he's meticulously 
making them work. He's repairing, he's doing whatever to get these things. So she finds a 1948 Kiev uh, 3. So that's a contacts camera with a fucking Kiev label on it. And it doesn't have one of the original lenses. It has a Jupiter lens, uh, 50 mil lens, uh, that's an F2 that was from uh, 1953, I think. So it's it, it, it it's it's not from that the, the the stock parts from Germany, but still, it's a really neat neat lens. And so she gets all that. She she figures that stuff out. You know, buys you know, brings it back. Somebody along the way gave her a um, a Zorky body. Um, because somebody, that she, the guy that was in the store with her at the same time just wanted the lens, didn't want the body. And the guy's like, ah, this doesn't really work. There's a something with a something and you can have it for free. And so she brought that back for me also. Um, and so I'm starting to think about like these, some Russian stories I could tell and I could actually publish since we have a publishing company now, could actually maybe make a zine that's like a Soviet special issue. And I could tell some of the more non-climbing stories, illustrate them with pictures i have some dupes from ace but i can just go you know find him get us you know take my scanner down to where he lives in southern utah and you know maybe get access to those pictures and get some of them tell some of those stories about the you know the, he did this whole photo sort of essay of this antonov biplane you know with the commuters on it coming from like they're flying food from mark you know from where they live to a market in a bigger city and it's cheaper. And there actually, you know, there's a, uh, uh, in, in the height of summer, um, it was, and ch- air travel was so fucking cheap within the Soviet Union at that time. People could, like, in Tajikistan, that were, you know, maybe warmer climate, whatever, they'd grow fruit and they'd get, like, baskets of fruit. They'd buy a plane ticket. They'd fly. They'd sell them in front of the airport in Moscow and fly home with a profit because it was so hard further west in the big cities wow. to get fresh produce. And you'd get it, you know, like, I picked it this morning and got on the plane. And, like, so there'd be some really cool stories like that to tell. And then I started talking to some other people that I, that, um, and I learned that you had been to Siberia. I learned that Trevor had spent three weeks in St. Petersburg, like, working a wind tunnel and maybe doing a illegal base jump in St. Petersburg, which fucking blows me away. Um, and then maybe, uh, um, and then I thought about, uh, I remember that uh, Steph Davis had taken a trip to Kyrgyzstan in 97, I think it was. And maybe I'd ask her to sort of retell that story from a perspective of this many years later. Um, and I thought, okay, well, there's a whole issue of, we could do a Soviet special issue with the zine. And we've already recorded a podcast with Dalila about the whole camera search. She's got all the photographs from, from that day. That's awesome. You have pictures from your Siberian trip. Yes. Trevor... I don't know what he's got in terms of, you know, photographic support. Make him but, write something. But, but he'll write something. Yeah. yeah. And awesome. and surely there are, you know, other people that I know that may have been there. And so I'm thinking now, like I have it in my head to do, you know, a double issue. Of, you know, it'd be a, a zine, it'd be out of series or something, but in the Ray's line, if you will. But just do a double issue, do a 72-page issue, because they're all 36 right now. Do a 72-page issue that's special Soviet thing. Because, like, the, all the helicopter markings are, you know, in the photographs that I have, they still have CCCP on them. You know, they're yeah. still, it's just like, it, 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 it still was, it wasn't fully broken up yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is fresh. It was fresh. It was fresh. I mean, and that stuff was, I was there in 2000 and 
12, so seven, a little over seven years ago. Okay. And yeah, I mean, I was way, way northeastern, far Siberia. Like, you know, we flew, we flew six hours from Moscow east, you know, like further okay. than, further than like California to New York. Yeah. But, uh, and then drove even further northeast. And there was a lot of old Soviet stuff out there, still hammer and sickle murals on the sides of buildings oh, and yeah. old, you know, Soviet buildings and tanks and things and yeah man they haven't i mean i think they've they've renovated the cities and stuff a little more but you get outside of there they haven't spent any money they haven't done anything to clean sure. up it's all there might be worth a trip back i mean <laughs> i'm not saying i'd turn down the opportunity but i'm not saying i wouldn't either yeah yeah <laughs> hey man thank you for sharing the story that thanks was for, awesome. I, thanks for the idea, like well, of just sitting down and doing this, dude. Because a lot, like a lot of your big climbs and successes and failures, you've written about, and so people know about them. But knowing you personally and ha having heard a few stories, I, I think it's just as fascinating to hear the the like you were saying the 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 stories around the climbs. It's not yeah. it's not always just the mountain. It's like how how you got there and what happened around it and. I mean, dude, that was like what thirty years ago. You you recalled that pretty, a lot of detail. That was awesome. So I hope, <laughs> you know, regard doesn't have to be with me. With anyone, friends who wants to, hope you sit down and do it again about some other things. You know, like it, I mean, it'd be pretty cool to do that. It actually. would actually. It would be and, cool to sit down and like one of the you know sit down and talk about beyond good and evil and and the whole the whole chamonix thing and you know maybe leading up to that or around that or i'm sure there's a lot of things you could talk about or other other routes you know and and, and mostly it, it, really the 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 things that i yeah i appreciate the climbing i have good memories about the climbing yes. it shaped me it, it made me that, that kind of stuff but but a lot of the the, the incidental kind of pieces of different trips to you know of you know just being sick in the fucking third world you know yes. and still trying to get shit done yes and and or you know trip that scott and i were on in bolivia in 96 that um you know some people stole a bunch of stuff out of our base camp and we chased them through the night you know and that i mean there's a it that in of itself is a really amazing journey like a 72 hour fucking trip of yes. chasing these dudes of them kind of getting caught, you know caught by their parents and brought back to our base camp and the the you know watching torture happen in front of us and like it was okay so now yeah you've you've uh you have I, my attention <laughs> all <laughs> so right you, this needs to be a series i'm telling you you need to do this again okay yeah i and, i'm i i do and, not disagree because this was pretty neat to okay. like um, be guided along that that yeah. uh, trip on a little bit down memory lane, but also some stuff that still feels pretty close. Cool, man. Yeah, if I'm not in the room, I'm going to listen. So, cool. all right. Ben Staley, thank you. Thank you, Mark Dwight. Huh.